Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about what turns out to be a fairly controversial topic. Should there be gratitude? Should there be hakarasatov to the IDF soldiers? Does Torah learning fully protect us? And is an army even necessary? We are not going to be discussing if somebody should enlist in the army. There's an army. There are soldiers who are risking their lives. Should we be showing gratitude? And if so, how? We are going to have a general halachic conversation of hakarasatov. Is it halachically mandated to show hakarasatov? Or is it simply a nice thing to do? Does hakarasatov mean feeling gratitude? Or do you need to show, say thank you? Do you need evidence that hakarasatov historically... Have the Gdolim had Akarasatov towards the IDF? We'll talk about the Israeli army. Does the Israeli army enable those in yeshiva to learn? Or conversely, do those learning in yeshiva enable the army to have military success? Joining us today, we are going to start out with the world-renowned educator and lecturer, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Then we will speak with Rabbi David Gottlieb, who is the director of an organization called Salash, which works tirelessly to help Frum soldiers maintain their Frumkeit in the army. Then we'll have a halachic conversation with Rabbi Daniel Heyman, who is a Rosh Kolel. He spent nine years writing a safer dedicated, 300 pages, dedicated to Akarasatov, the halachas of Akarasatov. And then we'll culminate the show with Rabbi Joshua Friedman, who founded Israel Select. It is a fund that targets needs of Kalali show that aren't addressed by others. Right now, he is focusing on tefillin, getting tefillin to non-observant soldiers. So we're going to talk with Rabbi Gottlieb, talking about the ruchnius of observant soldiers, and with Rabbi Friedman, talking about the ruchnius of non-observant soldiers. At the end of the day, at the end of the show, we will have a clip from Rabbi Baruch Rosenblum, it is for the Hebrew speakers. He is addressing the current situation in Israel, the soldiers, the captives, and displaced individuals. It is well worth listening to that clip. As an introductory remark, a few Rosh Yeshivas have said that they are concerned about showing gratitude to and even davening for soldiers in the Israel Defense Services. They've given different rationales. We will be addressing them today. One rationale that they have offered is by thanking them, by thanking the soldiers, by writing letters to the soldiers, etc. We are glorifying them in an unhealthy way, and maybe that will inspire boys to join the IDF. That's number one. Number two, the army represents strength. They forget about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Every success is from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and not because of the strength effort that we put into it. And number three, you don't have to give HaKarasatov to someone who is doing something he's required to do. They are required to serve in the IDF, so why give them HaKarasatov? There are a number of views on our issue, and we'll start talking about the view that is negative toward HaKarasatov, towards the IDF. We're going to hear now a clip. It's part of a 20-minute, 20-plus-minute uh, sheer or response given by a well-known Israeli Rosh Yeshiva, and he was fairly negative on giving HaKarasatov to the soldiers. We'll just have a few clips, and then I'll give a quick synopsis of what he said. But 
האם אני צריך להרגיש עליהם מקום הסטורי, כי למה יש להם נלחמים, והם מועילים לי שהם נלחמים. אז אני חוזר לשאלה, למה לא צריך להרגיש על קורס הטוי לאלה שאוספים את הזבל, ולאלה שמנקים את הרחובות, ולאלה ואלה... שם אין לנו שאלה כזאת. למה? זה תפקיד שלך, מה אתה רוצה? אז גם פה זה תפקיד שלך. אבל אם לא היה צבא היינו צריכים להתגייס, לעשות צבא גם? אם לא היה צבא לא היה בעיות. הרב חיים שמואלביץ כותב שהם מוסרים את נפשם למעננו, אז אחד שפותח פתח לחברו את חייו, את חייו הוא חייב לו, אז פה קל וחומר, ככה כותב בעניין המלחמה של יום כיפר, בסוף סיכוס מוסר. מה, מה הפשט צריך להרגיש שהם מוסרים את נפשם למעננו? חד משמעי לא. חד משמעי לא. אי, למה זה כתוב שמה? אתה רשאי לדלג על התשובה. חד משמעי לא. לא. So what this Rosh Yeshiva said, and I'm not translating what we just heard, just in general, on a high level, he said there's no need to express gratitude to soldiers in the army, even those fighting in Gaza, any more than saying thank you to those who collect the garbage from the streets. The soldiers who draft, they are nebuchs. I don't think anyone drafts willingly. They wouldn't be there otherwise. Maybe some meshugayim. That's basically what he said. They do it because they have to. Why is there any need to have a Karasatov show appreciation any more than a plumber? If you have a doctor that helps you, heals you for free, absolutely say thank you. But if he's paid for it, if he's required to do it, don't bother. That's what he said on a high level. He went on further to say that uh, 1,200 Niftarim, the 1,200 people were killed on October 7th. It's not really his issue. He couldn't really relate it. He didn't think it was any worse than a bus accident. Now, uh, this didn't sit so well with me. I uh, had a number of issues with it. I'll just address a few points here to say that everyone is required to fight in the army. We really have to divide up between the fighting army and the Miluin, the reservists, and that... Mostly now that we have in the army, the reservists, 200,000 standing army, 300,000 people were called up. But truth be told, of those that were called up, so many more responded that were not called up. 150% turnout is what I heard. So those are people that were not required to show up. And even the soldiers, even if you want to say that they're required to draft, there certainly are exemptions. You can go to Haredi Yeshiva and be exempt. But even those who do draft... And they're required to go. They're not required to fight and be in the fighting units. So many of these young men, they choose the most elite, difficult, challenging, and dangerous units because they want to help Klali Shul. So that's not something that they are required to do. I heard a story, an unbelievable story about somebody in Neve Daniel. He had a broken leg, a broken leg on October 7th. It was somewhat healed, but he had a large cast on. And when he was called up, He could have gotten out. He should have gotten out. He had a broken leg. And he personally removed the cast. He sawed the cast off his leg because he knew they would not take him otherwise. Obviously, somebody who's not required to go to the army. The story, the horrific story of the father of the six who was exempt from going to the army and he was murdered by Hamas because he went. He wanted to help Klali. So then how about... All of the, I don't know how many, tens and tens of thousands of Israelis who flew back from abroad just to help Klali Shul. So that first one didn't sit so well with me. On the other hand, we have from Rabbi Asher Weiss. He was very unhappy with the aforementioned view. And we are going to have a clip from him on his opinion on Hakarasatov to the army and more generally about the situation right now. 
the Rav said that Mikhail gives names to soldiers. There's certain Russian Shivas in America that spoke at Lahedra against this by saying that they're afraid they're going to glorify the soldiers and then Barham are going to join the army after the war. You know, if we, if we are afraid, then if we daven for a soldier, our boys will go to the army. That's a very sad state of affairs. If we are afraid that Yeshiva Bukhama go to the army, if they daven for a soldier, that's very sad. If that is the massive, then I think that a Yeshiva should go home and pass pass on the mantle to, to others. <laughs> I, I, I never like to speak negatively. I say my opinion. I'm fully aware of what others said. I totally disagree. Totally, 100%. I think, you know... Rab Chaim Shmonevitz, Rab Chaskel Levinstein were yeshivish guys. <laughs> they were yeshivish guys, I think. I was very close to Avshach. It was a very special relationship. And officers used to come on a steady basis to visit Panovich, just to, to, to be exposed to the Torah world. And Avshach used to always, you know, invite them to his, to his office. And every time he said, we have a chorus of you're safeguarding the country, we're learning Torah and you're a merit. So I think Rav Shach was a yeshivish person. So what happened to us? We're, we're, but, but also, Rav when, when did we change? This was Rav Chaim Shmonevitz, Rav Chaskalev, and Shana Shach. I'm not talking about the Klois of Magarevi. was a chassidish Rebbe. But Rav Shach, I thought, said, said, was Mesopic, right? Because of the... Glorifying Kochi Votsimbiadi. Like different, different than that. We're not glorifying Kochi Votsimbiadi. We're davening for Yiddish Kendalach. We're not going. The army today is not about Kochi Votsimbiadi. I told you some stories of soldiers. We're living in a different world. You know, you need to press the mode button in your mind and, and just move fast forward 20 years. We're living in a different world. Well, I, I, I hear I'm saying the in argument. That's the argument. That's yeah, but, people make. but you need to know the world you're living in to give hadrochen, to give guidance. This is not about This is about caring for Yiddish Akindalach. And even the ones that aren't from, you know, so many of them are real benaytoid and from, but they're all eaten, you know. We are supposed to love every Jew. What, what does it have to do with Kharikhaitsa Yudi? I think this reflects such a lack of self confidence. Nobody is glorifying the army. We're dampening for Yiddish Kinder who are dying every day. That's it. Those are not our brothers. What? They're not Eden? What is this? In a similar vein, Rabbi Ben-Sion Mutsafi, who is one of the most prominent Sephardi Gedolim, was asked as follows by one of his Talmidim, Morenu Harav, soldiers are being killed every day, what will be? And Rabbi Mutsafi responded back as follows in Hebrew, but I'll quote it in the English, we and only we are guilty. He's talking about to the B'nai Yeshivas. Let's take responsibility is what he's saying. We and only we are guilty. Come, let us take responsibility together will improve our good deeds. And he gives seven eitzas. Seven eitzas, what they have to do, waking up early for davening, paying attention to all davening, not speaking in shul. Every minute we have to learn 
Torah. We can't waste even one minute, etc., etc. Number seven, Halila. If we fail in any of the above, in one through six, we'll say vidui and have harat and have regret. So in other words, he's saying we need to take this very seriously. And then he ends off by saying, quote, the soldiers are being Moser nefesh so we can live and be osek in the Torah HaKadosha. Again, the soldiers are being Moser nefesh so we can live and be osek in the Torah HaKadosha. Obviously, this is a very different approach from the first view that we had, and we'll dis- be discussing both of them on today's show. In fact, we see there are two roles based on what we just heard. There are those who are protecting and those who are learning, physically protecting. Those who are learning are also protecting, but they are protecting one another, apparently. Just a quick vort on Parshas V'yechi, the bracha that Yaakov Avinu says that will be the future bracha whenever a parent will give a bracha to his children. It's going to be this bracha, so the Chidah addresses this issue. Why specifically Ephraim and Menashe? What's the power of this bracha? And he says we have to analyze it. Ephraim and Menashe were different, different people, very different people, very different strengths, very, very different focuses in life. And he says that Ephraim is based on Vayikra Araba, was the Rosh Yeshiva of Yaakov Avinu's Yeshiva. That was Ephraim Torah. On the other hand, Menashe, as discussed in the Tanhuma, he was in charge of the house of Yosef. He represented Gvura strength, Shilton, representing power, being a ruler, being in control, managing other people, and says the Chidah that this is the ideal bracha that a parent can give to a child or children is to have both, to have Torah on the one hand, and also koach and osher, strength, wealth on the other hand. That is the bracha that a parent should give to the children. However, we have to make sure to focus on which is first, Ephraim and then Menashe. Torah comes first, and Menashe Thereafterward, I saw there was a, a Rebbe in a yeshiva. His name is Rav Aaron Cohen. He added on to this as follows. Why specifically Ephraim and Menashe? Why not Reuven and Shimon Yisachar? We could have given the bracha for other bracha, brothers as well. And he says what Ephraim and Menashe represent is two people that had tremendous challenges growing up in a secular society. The others grew up in the house of Yaakov. It's much easier to deal with challenges. There are much fewer challenges in that situation. However, somebody who grows up in the depravity of Egypt, in the cesspool of Egypt, that is much more challenging, and they were successful, Baruch Hashem, successful in a tremendous way, and that's the bracha especially when Klal Yisrael is in Galos, when we're in exile and dealing with challenges, even when living in the land of Israel, we still have the Galos challenges. The bracha should be just like an Ephraim or Menashe, that they were successful despite where they grew up. We should have the same bracha. And we could say that the same thing represents those who are learning in yeshivas. It is easier. You don't have the real challenges of not having time to daven and to learn and protecting Klal Yisrael and <laughs> being under tremendous pressure and tremendous risk of life. And we do see those different roles in the bracha of Kefraim and Menashe that should be for everyone. But we do so see those different roles. We do see the roles of those who are learning. They are protecting those who are fighting and those who are fighting, having greater challenges in certain ways, and they are protecting those who are learning. In fact, this is a Gemara in Sanhedrin, Memtes Amad Olive. It says as follows, If it weren't for David, 
that Yoav could not be effective. He would not be successful in waging war. Yoav was the general for David Amelech. In other words, to have military success, you needed the Torah learning and teaching of David Amelech. And the converse is also correct. Yomale Yoav, if it weren't for Yoav having the military and going out and physically protecting Klal Yishol, Asak David, but Torah David would not have been able to learn Torah. We see here that both are necessary. We need the David. We need the Yoav. We need the IDF. We need those in Yeshiva focusing on their learning, each protecting the other. I do want to mention one other Rav who has discussed this. There have been a few, but we'll mention one other. This is uh, one of the Russia Yeshiva of Yeshiva called Nachlas Halavim. It is one of the premier Haredi Yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. It was set up originally in 1986 by the son-in-law of Rav Chaim Shmuelovitz. And the Russia Yeshiva, one of the Russia Yeshiva, Rabbi Avraham Moshe Kirshenbaum, he was in a Q&A session with teachers from Beis Yaakov. So these are teachers from Beis Yaakov, and they were concerned about teaching their girls in their seminaries about Hakarasatov deifying. They were concerned this would deify the soldiers, and they were concerned about paganism and idolatry, because that's what they saw as what the IDF represents. So he responds as follows. It's, it, the response is very long. I'm just going to take a few snippets of what he said, and we'll post the rest online so you can see the whole thing. It's very powerful. So he says as follows. It can't be possible that teachers in Beis Yaakov are even asking me this question, should we show gratitude to the soldiers? What's even the question? He was stunned. He was shocked that you're even asking, should we show Hakarasatov to the Chayalim? And he says as, as follows, of course there should be Hakarasatov. They're involved in saving lives. What our problem is, talking about uh, the Haredi world, he says, and I'm not bashing on the Haredi world, that's the world that I'm part of, but he says, our, I'm just quoting, our problem is that we don't have self-confidence. We don't understand that if we praise something else, we say something good about something else, it doesn't take away from us. He continues to explain to them as follows that you need to show out Karasatov to everyone that does good for you. Be it Chayalim, be it those who are working with Zaka, be it a doctor. Even if you pay him, you have to have a Karasatov. Kalva Homer, certainly, when we have soldiers who are being most nefesh to protect Klali Shol, it's, it's an on issue. Of course you have to. And he says as follows, If anyone thinks, somebody who thinks that there are Chilonim, secular Jews that aren't doing good things, And somebody who says, uh, who thinks Goyim don't do good things, This is because he lacks self-confidence. Of course, there he's saying, of course, they're Chilonim that do good. Of course, they're non-Jews that do good, and we have to acknowledge that. And then he continues as follows, Yehudio setova omrim lo toda. If you have a Jew and he does something good, you say, thank you. Where did we learn this concept? That we look for excuses to not say thank you. I look for excuses under the ground to find a reason, an excuse to not say thank you. And then he says as follows. Who is the depraved, disgusting individual who educated us to do that? Posted Please look it up. I just do want to mention as follows. I saw an unbelievably inspiring, sad, 
but inspiring article about a certain chayal, a certain soldier, Ben Zasman from Yushalayim. He fell. He fell. He was murdered by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And he actually wrote a letter to his family when he went into the Gaza Strip as follows. He said, I'm just going to read extracts of it. I'm writing you this message on the way to the base. If you're reading this, something must have happened to me. As you know about me, probably no one is happier than me right now. I'm mamish on the verge of fulfilling my dream soon. I'm happy. And I'm grateful for the schus I have to defend our beautiful country and Am Yisrael. Then he writes a letter, very personal letter to his parents, his family. And then he concludes as follows. Another very important point. If Khalilah, I fall into captivity dead or alive. I'm not willing for any soldier or civilian to be injured by some deal to free me. I don't allow you to lead a campaign or anything like that. I'm not willing for terrorists to be freed for me in any way, shape, or form. Please don't breach my request. I'll say it again. I left home without even being called up to the reserves. Again, we have a soldier who is going, even though he's not required, he continues, I'm full of pride and a sense of mission. I always said that if I need to die, halavai, it will happen while defending others and our country. Unbelievable, mysterious nefesh by a chayal who is nifter, a chayal who is nifter on behalf of Klal Yisrael. And Emir Tashem, as we have the chayalim, protecting those in yeshiva and those in yeshiva protecting the chayalim, we could have mutual gratitude one for the other and we each can learn from the mysterious nefesh of the other what is required, what's necessary today in order to have success in the challenges that are facing Klal Yisrael. Before going to our guests, let's hear the riddles of the week. Our riddles of the week are going to somewhat follow in the theme of the show. We have a couple of halachic questions that were asked by Chayalim. The first one I heard in a show given by Rabbi Eli Belizon, and he was asked by a soldier as follows. A soldier, his minhag was to take on Shabbos, to Sefer Shabbos in advance, 25, 30 minutes, I don't remember the exact amount, before Shkia, before sunset, and now he was about to go into Gaza. It's Friday afternoon, he didn't know exactly when he was supposed to be going in, and he had the following question. Should he stick with his norm of accepting Shabbos early, 25 minutes in advance of Shkia? But the risk is that he's going to have to mobilize right then during that additional time of Tosefah Shabbos. So in effect, he would be creating a Chilol Shabbos for himself because he's accepting Shabbos early. Or on the other hand, should he do it nonetheless? Accept Shabbos early and he'll have the schus, he'll have the merit of Tosef Shabbos, a mitzvah, according to many Rishonim, that is a Dilraisa, when he would be called up to go in. He was already called up with when he was, his uh, his uh, commander would tell him, we are now entering into Gaza. So that was question number one. Another question, please send in your responses to these. Number two is, we had a Chayal who asked the following question. Shnai Mikra Targum is to be learned every single week, but he was mobilizing, going into Gaza. He didn't think he'd have time. Once he went in, can he learn Shnai Mikra Targum, during those excision circumstances, can he learn it in advance because he may not have time going in when the proper week came up? Please send in your responses. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, 
In America, our number is 732-806-8700. In England, it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael, it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go and hear from our guests. Joining us now is Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. Rabbi Jacobson is a hugely popular speaker and insightful commentator on current events. And because our show is all about Hakarasatov, Rabbi Jacobson, I want to thank you for always being there for Klal Yisrael, being a true source of inspiration during difficult times, including Corona. I will tell you, my daughter watched your Q&A avidly. And when I was going upstairs, I said, I have to get on a Zoom. She said, with who? I said, with, with Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. She could not believe it. She said, wow. I think she wanted to join us. So thank you for being there for Klal Yisrael during Corona and since October 7th. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My honor and pleasure. Thank you for having me, Rabari. A, a privilege and pleasure. So wh why don't we start with a very basic question. There's a tug of war, it seems, between some Rashi Yeshiva, some saying that Torah is a Shmira and that's all we need, and others are saying that we need to show Hakaras for the Chayalim, and uh, it's not all about learning. It is all about learning, but we also need to protect ourselves, and we need to be active on the on the uh, with the military, we need to be out there and protecting actively calling. So, so where does this concept of Torah learning protects? It's a shmira. Where does that come from? And if that's a hundred percent a blanket shmira, why does Israel need an army? Wonderful question. To start off, I have to say that uh, I feel that having this conversation itself is very, very painful. Um, I believe, you know, there are questions that need answers. And there are questions that it's a non-starter, like, like in the language of Chazal, kush, kush karales. <laughs> um, the entire notion and even the debate about it is, is very painful for me personally. I think it's a sad commentary on us and our communities and maybe on some parts of our educational system. And I say this with a lot of pain. I could start crying when I say this. Um, the fact that it's even up for debate. You may know the Gewaldike Torah by Reb Chaim Shmulevich, Zechit Tzadik Levracha, the Rosh Hashiva of Mir. It's in Sechis Musar, where he explains why it was only Chushim, the son of Dun, who was a deaf grandson. And according to Pirkei de Eliezer, chapter 29, he was also mute. He was the only one who stood up to Esau. The only one. You had Yosef, the most powerful person in the world on the par. You had Yehuda, a legendary warrior. All the Shvatim, Shimon and Levi, they took down Shechem. Nobody stood up to Esau, who was a liar, <laughs> trying to steal once again Marisa from his brother Yaakov after Yaakov's passing. It was only one grandson who was deaf, according to Gemara and Daf Yud Gimel, and mute, according to Pirkei Rebelezer, who stood up to Esau. Rav Chaim Shmulevich said, very, very sadly and powerfully, he said, because he, he was the only one who did not get schlepped in to the two sides, to the conversation. He was deaf. The other ones, as great as they were, truly great giants, the Shifte Yutke, 
they became part of the debate. Esav has a question, we have an answer, he's saying a law, he's saying the truth. Chushim was deaf. He remained sensitive to the acute horror of the moment. Yaakov's Levaya has to be postponed for a few days. Gemara says, Avi Abba, mutal Yaakov is being disgraced. Till Naftali comes back from Mitzrayim with the, with the deed, he couldn't tolerate that. And Reb Chaim teaches, and I think it's a very profound point, that sometimes, you know, the very conversation is already the problem. Like the very conversation. We should have this conversation because I think we all need to be enlightened and all be educated. But I just want to identify how painful it is for me to hear this question. <laughs> and now that I said that, and I got that off my chest, uh, of course, the answer is, Parshas B'chukaisai. Parshas B'chukaisai begins in B'chukaisai Teilechu, Ves Mitzvaisai Tishmeru, Vasisem Oisam, Uredaftem Esaveichem, Venofel Ufnechem Lechorev, Radfu Mechem Chamisha Meya, Umeim Echem Revava, Yidufu Venoflu Oivechem Lefnechem Lechorev. Which means, in simple English, if you follow my statues, you observe my mitzvahs, and you follow them, and Rashi brings from Tyrus Kainim, Bechukai so it includes both the immersion in Torah and in mitzvahs. This is the great, the greatest weapon that the Jewish people have for eternity, with the Rebbeinu Shalom says, you v'nasati shalom ba'aretz, or shchavtem vein macharet, but the same Pasuk says, v'naflu lefneichem lecharev. Your enemies will fall before you by the sword. You'll be pursuing them. So right here in this Pasuk, we have that eternal partnership between doing what we're doing, using the natural resources that Hashem gave us to defeat a Nazi, to defeat a sworn enemy that wants to destroy every single Jew. Just like we're celebrating Hanukkah and the Hashemenayim, and his sons, went and fought a war to defeat the enemy. The Gemara said, You have to kill him. You have to go kill him. The Shulchan Aruch HaRechaim, Simen Shin Chavtas Hilcha Shabbos, which was written for Galos. This is Simen Shin Chavtas and Shulchan Aruch. It's not Hilcha Zilam and Shulcha, not Hilcha Zilam and Mikdash. Nachrim Shatzaru Alayaris Yisrael, you have to be Mechalal Shabbos, Yoitzim Aleyim Beklei Zayin, O Mechalal in Aleyin Esa Shabbos, because Pikuach Nefesh of even one soul, Doich Ekola Terekula. And this is even if Bo Aliske Kashvetevin, they came to steal some straw to feed their animals. That's all they want. But as the Munishokanarch says this from Gamar and Ariv and hey, if it's Ir Hasmuchalisfar, meaning if there's even a potential danger that one Jewish community will be in danger on Shabbos, everyone, whoever can, is Machuyev to go out with weapons and be Machalal Shabbos, Khilo Shabbos Minatera. Why? Because of the suffix of Pikoch Nefesh. The Gemara in Sanhedrin Daf Memtes says, "Il male David lo yasa yoyev melcham, il male yoyev lo yasa David b'tayra." So for Sugi in Sanhedrin, a fascinating Gemara. There was an eternal partnership. Tayra Magna Matzalos. The Gemara says in Soita, "Ela berechav ela vasuzim vanachnu b'shem Hashem alakeinu nasker." And the same Rebbeinu Shalom who gave us the timeless and eternal weapon of limud hatayra and amun and kiyum mitzvahs and the biggest mitzvah that Kilo said, "Avas Yisrael," told us. That at times of war, and I mean, let's be very let's 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 speak very bluntly. I want to ask a question. Okay, what would the Vilna Gaon paskin? What would Reb Chaim Valajin paskin? What would the Beis Halevi paskin? What would Reb Chaim Brisker? What would Reb Chaim Oizer? What would the Chafetz Chaim paskin? If they were told that you have hundreds of thousands of people who want to perform a second Holocaust. Hamas said, we'll do it again and again and again. 
and there's no army, you have Yeshiva Bachrim sitting and learning, what would be the obligation? Would the obligation be that everyone who can should take a weapon and defend Jews and kill the enemy? Or the Chafetz Chaim would paskin, no, you should not do that. And a Rav who would paskin, guys, go sit and learn, even though there's an enemy at the door about to slaughter your children, we would call him a Shaifich Damim. This would be called Shvichiz Damim. <laughs> the Torah HaKadosha tells us, Haba Lahargach Hashkim Lahargai. And it's Shulchan Aruch for Galos, Simen Shin Chavtes, not even in Eretz Yisrael, even in Chutz Laaretz. Communities have Shaimrim. <laughs> Communities have Shaimrim to protect them physically. And this is communities that are Baruch Hashem basically safe. So Kol Shekim when you have a lamb surrounded by 70 wolves, is it a question that the Torah demands of us? It's not a right, it's a moral obligation. How grateful do we have to be to those who are Moser Nafshom? Day in and day out, literally put their lives on the line, which allows tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of yeshiva bachrim or yungalite to sit and steig in Torah and bring down the spiritual indestructible, indestructible protection of Torah, Torah and mitzvahs. This is an absolute unit and partnership and kinship. And to start questioning this side and that side, for me, it's, it's such a painful commentary. Bnei Torah. Rosh Yeshivas, Rebbes, Mashgichim, Mashpiyim, spiritual leaders, Rabbanim, Talmidi Yeshivas, Avrech Kela, we should be at the forefront of unlimited Avas Yisrael, Avas HaTorah, Avas Hashem, especially, especially thinking about people who literally, literally daily are dying, are dying, their parents are burying these young boys who go out there for one reason, <laughs> They put their lives on the line, dying for their brothers and sisters to save Jews in Eretz Yisrael, to save our people, to save our homeland. <laughs> like the Gemara says, Reb Chaim Shvalevich said during the Yom Kippur War, he quoted the Gemara in Kedushin, Harugei Lud, Psachim, Harugei Lud, Ein kol beri yechel alamad b'mechitzasa. Ein kol beri yechel alamad b'mechitzasa. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean there's no disagreements about any topic. This doesn't mean that the government of Israel is sacred and holy. Far, far from it. In fact, it's the government's horrific, horrific mistakes over decades that brought disaster for Israel's security. It's obvious. But to be able to have such, as we say, atimut, such, such a adishut, such apathy, it's cold-blooded, such a lack of sensitivity, and so... So inauthentic, so unreal. I mean, let's ask any question. Let me ask a question. If I'm a Rashiv and I'm in a base Medrash and I'm sitting there and a bunch of terrorists are coming and they want to gun down every one of my Bachram and kidnap them and abduct them, what would I tell those boys? Defend yourself? Would I want that the army should come in and gun down these murderers and save my boys? I would say, nah, I don't need them. I don't need them. Come on, let's remember what happened in the Holocaust. With the Nazi invasion, country after country, and Jews, Jews were murdered in the millions. Everybody was running to find a bunker, and you hid there for a year and two years. Somebody in Auschwitz, uh, somebody was in Auschwitz, his name is Rabbi Mangel, he's still all over here. He once told me, he said, you know, if you were a mouse or a rat, it was much likelier that you would get more respect and dignity in Auschwitz than if you were a Jew. Right? Jews, Jews weren't even mice, they weren't even, they weren't even rats, helpless creatures who had nobody, nobody to protect them. And Abba Chazli Hashem that we have tens of thousands of our Jewish young brave men 
who are moister nafsham to protect Jewish life according to the Tzivuya Torah, Loi Samad al Damreyacha, Hatzalas Nafashas. We are so grateful to Rebbein Shalom and so grateful to each and every single one of them who puts their life on the line, especially when I could sit and wake up in the morning and go to my Bismedrash, go by Yeshiva and, and learn our Rajbah and learn our Rambam and Kachzichin Azvachim or Achulun or Baba Basra or Masechta Brachas or learn any part of Torah that I'm learning. Yeah, hundreds of thousands. Like, this is uh-huh. like olive bays of, of, of Jewish wisdom. If anybody heard anything new here, I would actually be shocked. Forgive me if I'm just repeating like what we knew for thousands of years. Right, there's hundreds of thousands that are being Moser Nefesh. So uh, on the hundreds one hand... Thou- literally hundreds, hundreds of thousands. Of, and, it's and, a and, and I also wonder, what happened to Menschlichkeit? You know, there's something called Menschlichkeit. Seichel. Huh? Seichel. Seichel, basic human emotion. <laughs> Fathers who die and their wives are widows, and their children are going to be growing up without a father. Bachrim, little boys, young boys who die, and their parents have to bury them. Like, there's so much pain in the Jew- among the Jewish people now. The minimum, the minimum is go give a hug, give an embrace, say a prayer, connect, feel. Isn't the Yisoyda Yisoydas of the whole Klal Yisrael? What did Hillel is? I can't learn it, no? What did Hillel tell the convert, the non-Jew, in Masech the Shabbos, Daflaman Aleph? What's Kola Terukula? Love, kindness, generosity. Every Toysvis, every Ramban, every Rajb, every Rambam, every Rebakiveig, every Pirchashmul, every Rebchayim, every Griz is a commentary on Avas Yisrael. You know what, my dear friend? When Yiddishkeit is missing a neshama, when Yiddishkeit is missing Avas Yisrael, in the name of Torah, we can develop a sense of apathy, alienation, indifference, and really, really deviate from basic, basic Judaism, common sense, humanism, and everything. Humanity. To bring to the world. Humanity. <laughs> the Rambam says in Hilchas Hanukkah, Kol HaTorah Nitna Lasses Shalom Ba'Evam. Right. So, 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 Moshe mm-hmm. Rabbeinu asked Hashem to forgive even those who made a terrible mistake. He said, that, that's the vision of a Jewish leader. That's the vision of Matan Torah. Very nice, very nice. So on, on the one end, we have a Shmira, but on the other hand, we need to protect ourselves. Both are absolutely required. I will tell you on your first point that you started out that these things should be Pasha. We were talking at the Shabbos table and one of my daughters asked, what's going to be this week's show on headlines? And I said, should we have gratitude to the soldiers and she said, well, what's the question? <laughs> and the conversation kind of ended right there. I didn't know what to say. But but in any case, if, if we're it's, saying... It's that, not only that, it's the same mitzvah. Maybe somebody would say, you know, uh, should we put on tefillin during the war? Should we wear tzitzes during the war? Should we keep Shabbos during the war? This is the Kayach of Amisol, the Zelba Eibishter, the same Reboi who gave me a mitzvah, gave the Jewish people a mitzvah, the greatest mitzvah to save Jewish lives through physical means. <laughs> right. So, so when people what's, what's are like, learning, huh? when people are learning, 
And they're supporting Klali so by learning. There's a Shmira. There's also a huge Shmira for those on the battlefield. We have a concept of mitzvah trichas kavana. I'm, I'm wondering if that should be necessary when those who are learning that they have to have in mind, I'm not learning because it's the thing to do. I'm not learning because I simply enjoy it. People do. It's the thing to do when he's learning. In order to have that shmira, do they have to have the intention that we are learning on behalf of Klalisha, that we're learning on behalf of the Chayalim that are being more sernefish for us right now? I think that whenever a Jew is engaged in Torah, it strengthens all of the Jewish people. Kol Yisrael, Arevim, Zebaza, Arevim, also, as the Baal Shem Tov said, we're mixed, we're integrated, we're one. The Yerushalmi Masechna Darim compares the Jewish people to one body. And whenever you strengthen any limb in the body, all of the limbs get strengthened, the circulation gets strengthened. So that's why the, the Medrash Rabbin Parshas told us, they asked about, they asked Bilam Ben Ba'ir and Avnimus Hagardi, about how you can defeat the Jewish people. And they famously gave that answer, of basically Yitzchak Avinu was saying, if the Kol Kol Yaakov is powerful, as it says over there, as the Tinoikas, as the Jewish children are sitting in the Batei Medrash and learning Torah, so then Yidei Esav will ultimately be defeated. In other words, the fact that the Jewish people are connected to Hashem, who is the source of eternity through Torah and mitzvahs, that itself constitutes a tremendous flow of spiritual connection and divine energy and salvation for the Jewish people. And that's why we're here thousands, thousands of years later. What did we have that all the other great empires that tried to defeat us didn't have? And the answer is, You want to kill the Jewish people? God says, no problem. Kill me first. <laughs> kill the rabbi. After you finish killing him, then you'll be able to kill the Jewish people. But certainly, when somebody has, just like in mitzvahs, there's different levels of doing mitzvahs, right? There's some shittas that many mitzvahs, ain't shuchas kavana, whether it's a big sugi in Shulchan Aruch and Arachayim, sugi in Brachis and other places, mitzvahs shuchas kavana. The bottom line is there's different layers and ways of doing mitzvahs. There's shaloy lishma, there's lishma, just like in Torah itself. So I think when somebody has more kavana, when somebody has more intention, and when somebody really connects with all of our brothers and sisters and really you know, I, I, I'm davening for you, and I'm learning for you, and I'm thinking about you. It's it's much more powerful. It's much more potent. Right. Absolutely. And certainly when it comes to davening, certainly when it comes to davening, even more so, the whole concept there, davening without uh, without kavane is like a goof without a neshama. It's like a... It's... Like kavane, gubla, neshama, the Shalos says. And there's also the famous Reb Chaim, Chidush Reb Chaim Alevi al Rambam, one of the first Reb Chaims on Rambam, and Hilchis... Hilchis Tefillah, the contradiction of Rambam, and Reb Chaim explains that the basic kavana in davening of Dalif Nemi is not just a tnai in davening, it's the chefts of davening, realizing that I'm in a relationship with Hashem. It's not about saying words, it's about a relationship. And when I'm davening, like the Rambam says in the beginning of Hilchis Tefillah, it's really turning to Hashem for my needs. And what are the greatest needs of a Jew, especially during such a time, such a time of war, such a time of crisis? It's the need for victory. The need for the Dan Natsach, it's the need that the Jewish people should come out unharmed, unscathed, that every one of our soldiers should return home safely, that one of our hostages should return home safely, and that we should be able to have the Kayach to defeat the evil and the terror and the enemy absolutely and unequivocally and completely for good. 
Right, so that's, that's, that's the tefillah of the day. That's the tefillah of the day. Shachris minchamayrev, and 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 a Jew should not underestimate, you know, the, the these powers. Sometimes they look small and insignificant, and it's just spiritual stuff. And yeah, it's true. I'm not on the front lines of the battlefield. It's true. My life is not in danger on the same level like the soldier. It's a whole different inya. It's a, it's a special schus. It says in Sfarim, smach zvulim b'tzeisecha So the Targum Unkelos says it's about war. Zvulim goes to war, and Yisachar protects the home front through spirituality. So the Mepharshim says, so why is Zvulim mentioned first? And the answer is because the only reason Yisachar could sit and learn and protect the home front spiritually, it's because Zvulim goes to war. So we have to realize what is happening here. These boys, these young men, or older men, middle-aged men, who are sacrificing everything is what allows the country to function. It's what allows us to daven, to learn, to do mitzvahs. It's not just hakaris hataiv. Even if you pass me a box of tissues, I should have a hakaris hataiv. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you give a donation to my organization, I should have a... This is much more than hakaris hataiv. I feel even the word hakaris hataiv is a cheap word. Come on, hakaris hataiv. Hakaris hataiv, if somebody helps me, when my car is broken, and so somebody gives me a lift from shul because I'm tired, I have hakaris hataiv. This is much more than hakaris hataiv. You could be giving them a kiss and a hug every time we see them. And much more than that, these are people who are, <laughs> their friends are dying on a daily basis. They're burying their friends. Do we understand the pain that these families are going through? What's the pain of parents burying children? Like, I just want us to go back to the basic Jewish heart, the basic human heart. You can't be a Jew without that. You know, I'm, I'm going to say something painful. The Gemara says in Yuma that sometimes I could learn Torah and the Torah becomes Samchayim. And sometimes I could learn Torah and the Torah becomes Sam HaMavas. The Torah, it's a quote from Chazal, Nasa Loi Sam HaMavas. It becomes poison for me. The Torah is not poison, Chas v'shalom, but it poisons me. You know why? Because in the name of Torah, I can become cruel. I can use Torah to justify indifference, apathy, cold-bloodedness, stupidity, selfishness, narcissism. In the name of Torah. That's why we need to teach Torah with an neshama. Torah needs pnimiyas. Torah needs a soul. Torah needs avas yisrael. You know what the Vilna Gaon writes? So this is a litvish shavart. It's not a chassidish shavart. It's from the Vilna Gaon. <laughs> you can't accuse him of being chassidic. The Vilna Gaon writes, I believe it's his commentary on Mishli. He says, the Gemara says about Bekamadaf Yudzayin, ain't mayim el Torah. Torah is compared to water. Why water? I mean, water is beautiful. We live from water. Why water? You know what he says? Something powerful. The gun says, when you water a plant or a shrub or a tree or a bush, a vegetable, the water will not determine what will grow. Whatever you planted and what you cultivated in the earth, that is what's going to grow. The water will help it'll irrigate that which you planted and whatever you planted will Hashem, come to the fore and sprout and blossom. If you planted apples and oranges and esrogim and watermelon and cantaloupe and olives and cherries and grapes and blueberries, and if you planted weeds and if you planted thorns, that's what's going to grow. So the Vilnagon says, Ain mayim ela taira. Taira is mayim. Whatever is inside of me, the taira is going to cause to blossom and grow. If that's going to, what's going to bring I'm it out? Unrefined person. If I did not work on my midas, if my avas Yisrael is not alive and burning, you know what's going to happen? The Torah is going to bring out more arrogance, more selfishness, more haughtiness, more superficiality. And if you're a worked out person, 
if you work on yourself, if you're an Ayyad Hashem, if you understand that the it's all about cultivating love, sensitivity, respect, finding the soul in yourself, seeing the soul in every Jew. Every Jew is a chalik, as Tanya says, then the Torah will cause you to become ah, a person of splendor and love and divinity and clarity and spirituality. And you become, you become a, a glorious source of light and love and connection. So let me ask a question. I got an email from my brother-in-law, and he's very concerned about these issues. And he wants to know what to think about those that unfortunately have these views. We have to stay away from... We have, we have the distance from the Chayalim. We don't, we shouldn't daven for them. We shouldn't have a karasatov because we're concerned that our children are going to get sucked into that way of life and whatever the other concerns they have. And he says, there's, these are organizations and I, I can't relate to them anymore once they have this view. But does that mean I should discard them and I should discard as well those Russia yeshiva in the United States that came out as fairly negative against the Chayalim? Or should, is there a way that we can take the good and leave the bad. But it's a difficult thing. How do we relate to people who just can't see that ahava nowadays and are so negative about what they should be so positive about? You're going to make me cry now. Let me tell you something. If for me, Making my children proud, B'nai Torah, and infusing my home and my family and my students with Avas HaTorah, Avas Hashem, comes at the expense of not having the ability to embrace, hug, kiss, love, show gratitude, feel empathy with people who sacrifice their life every single day to save these children, to save these students from an enemy. Hamas said we will do it again and again. If Hamas had it their way, Khalila, what would happen, Simchas Torah, would happen three times a day, Shachas Min and for Hamas it would be Simchas Torah every day until they would burn, torture, rape, destroy every one of the 6.6 million Jews in Eretz And they'd continue from here, out of Israel. And then they would continue out of Israel and visit us in Los Angeles and New York, London, Paris, and anywhere else where there's a Jew. So these soldiers are coming to protect me and you and all of our students and all of our children and grandchildren from these Rishoyim Arurim Nazis that have the glee in torturing and destroying every single Jew and burning them alive. The worst episodes of Jewish history, the worst things that we thought were, you know, Zichroinis, Mimei Kedem, we read about them on Tisha B'av, have come back in Tovshin Pei Dalet, in Chaster, October 7th, 2023. If for me, being a Yid, being a Yeresh Mayim, being an Eved Hashem, being a Loi Metoyer Mekayim Mitzvah means that I deprive my children and my students from loving and appreciating these people who are Moiser Nafshim B'Poyah. That ankle barrier, dying, giving their lives, looting the future of their entire lives in Elamaza for one thing, for Avas Yisrael, for Kedushas Hashem, for Atzolas Am Yisrael. If this is what Torah brings us to, well, all I can say is, to all my Shiurim, to all my Yerushamayim, and all my Torahs. It's the exact opposite. 
If I feel our Torah is so insecure that if for me to pray and say thank you to my soldiers is going to cause my students to say, hey, why am I learning Gemara? Why am I learning Mishnayis? Why am I learning Chumash? Why am I putting out Tefillin? Why am I davening Mayrib? Hey, let me just go to Gaza and get a life. Wow, what education am I giving my students? <laughs> what relationship to Torah? If our Torah is so flimsy, is so insecure, is so skin deep, if our commitment to it is so impoverished, it's so frail, that for me to say thank you to these warriors, to these heroes, I think we need to make a big cheshben anefesh and ask ourselves, what Judaism are we teaching? Obviously an important message, and hopefully this show will be sent around in the yeshivas because they do listen and hopefully this will be heard and uh, incorporated into their beings because it's very important to hear this yeah, thank you yes. so much for joining us really appreciate it's, it's so important a yiddish guy that's not based on emes la mitoy <laughs> that's not what we sacrifice our lives for four thousand years to preach a yiddish guy that's not based on emes la mitoy Absolutely. A Yiddish guy that's afraid of reality. <laughs> a Yiddish guy that has to close its eyes and say, oh, we can't say thank you to the doctor who made the surgery and saved their life. <laughs> We're not going to say thank you to the doctor because everybody might become doctors. <laughs> Imagine if a yeshiva bacher was saved by a doctor and we give, make a suicide and we give a special plaque to the doctors like they do constantly in Williamsburg and in Muncie and in Lakewood and in Israel. Oh, our whole house, they're all going to become, everybody's going to leave the base medicine and become doctors. Okay, now I understand there's a culture of the army and there's a culture of Tzahal and there's a culture of the soldiers and many Bachrim who went out. There were various challenges in Yerushalayim. I get it. I, I know the challenges. I know the issues. But let's understand the reality that we are real, real partners with all the challenges. And our job today is our job today is to bring Torah to everybody. Not to cut off 70% of Klal Yisrael by calling them Rishayim, chas v'shalom. We must remain ambassadors of love, light, and clarity. Never to stoop down to levels of argumentation and hate and toxicity and negativity because we all lose. This is not about an ego thing. Rabbi Yairoi said this, this rabbi said this, this rabbi said this, he said this. This is not about sensationalism. This is too serious of a time. Our nation is at war. So many Jews have been murdered and slain. So many are in captivity. So many of our kids are on the front lines. This is not a time of sensationalism. This is a time of infinite clarity, decisiveness, resolve, resilience, faith, and real achdos. Achdos that we know from Chazal and from Torah is our most powerful weapon. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi. Yeah, may we see a complete victory, and may we see a complete Geula Shleima. Take it from Yad Mamash. Thank you. Amen. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi David Gottlieb. Rabbi Gottlieb learned in Kolo for 10 years before becoming the rabbi of Shomrei Emuna, which is the largest shul in Baltimore. He made Aliyah in 2009 and became a rabbi in Ramat Beit Shemesh and also Magid Shir. He has published four Sfarim and given thousands of Shirim, but for the past three years he has served as the director of Tzalash, which offers religious and emotional support to observant Chayalim. Rav Gottlieb, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ari. A pleasure. Let's start out with the basics. What does Tzalash mean, and how did you get involved? So Tzalash is a Hebrew word, which is really an acronym, Rosh Tevos, for Tzava L'Shem Shamayim. Ushmo Kenhu. 
Our mission and our agenda is exactly as the name implies. We are there, as you said, to provide religious support to the Chayalim to make the Israeli army as much as possible, an army that is L'shem Shemayim, that is following the values and aspiring to the goals of the Torah and Halacha. Uh, in terms of my personal involvement uh, with the organization, it's really, uh, I think, a fortuitous story of Hashkacha and uh, something that, to me at least, was very, very powerful, even emotionally. Um, we have three sons, a daughter and then three sons, and my oldest son was drafted into the army through a yeshiva at Hezder. He had already learned for a few years in yeshiva, and then along with his yeshiva friends, was drafted a few days after the original Pesach of Corona. Um, and shortly after he was drafted, uh, he started expressing and sharing with us the challenges of being religious in the army, something we could talk about uh, afterwards if you'd like. Um, and I was nervous, like any parent would be, uh, and I did whatever I could as a father to help. But the truth of the matter is, Baruch Hashem, a year and a half later, he finished the army as, or more religious even, than he came in. And of course, we give great Hakar Satov to HaKadosh Baruch for that. But HaKadosh Baruch Shaliach, what really helped my son Yaakov with this incredible accomplishment. So shortly thereafter, in almost every conversation, he would mention an organization, which I had never heard of, called Salash, and a rabbi named Rav Peretz Einhorn, who I also never heard of. So I had a lot of Hakar Satov to them, because apparently they helped him a lot. And one thing led to another. I met this Rav Peretz. I started helping out a little bit as a volunteer. And before I knew it, uh, about a year plus later, Rav Peretz asked to come see me. And he basically offered me an opportunity to become a partner with him and to join the organization it had been a kind of a startup until then, but he was looking to make it grow. And as you said in your introduction, I was quite busy already, a Rebbe for Americans in the Gush Yeshiva, a rabbi of a new community in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and I wasn't looking. But after me saying no to him three times and him not taking no for an answer, eventually, with the uh, recommendation of an American friend of mine, I went to speak to Rav Usher Weiss. And when I went to Rav Usher and told him about my dilemma, should I help this organization or should I stay more full-time as a Rebbe in the Yeshiva? Uh, after back and forth and weighing the issues, Rav Usher told me, listen, if you want to stay learning and teaching Torah full time, that's certainly your right. But if you're asking me, he said to me, is it legitimate to consider uh, leaving the base medrash in a full time capacity as a Rebbe to help an organization such as this, even in an organizational, uh, administrative, fundraising capacity, all the things that it means to be the director of an organization? He said to me, all I can tell you is one thing, to help the Chayalim is Kadosh Kadoshim. There is nothing more important. So with that type of uh, response, uh, I did join the organization two and a half uh, years ago, and I still teach a little bit in that yeshiva, I still have my shul, uh, but I am very full-time helping this organization thrive and hopefully impact the army in a positive way. That's quite an endorsement from Rav Asherweiss, quite an endorsement. So let me ask you on the uh, about Salash, about the the agenda that they have, or non-agenda, is something that they include in, in their services, advising boys to go to the army, or are they agnostic when it comes to that? That's a very good question, and I think it's an important one to clarify. As we all know, and I'm sure all your listeners know, one of uh, the most contentious issues in the Orthodox community, in the firm community, is the question of who should go uh, to the army. And everybody, including me, <laughs> has an opinion on that matter. But as an organization, we have no agenda, and as you put it, we are agnostic. That is to say, we take no official position about who should or shouldn't go to the army. Our only agenda is if you are in the army, we want to help you stay as connected to Torah study as possible, as connected to being passionately from and vibrantly religious as possible, period. But we have no agenda about who does or doesn't go to the army. Only if you're in the army, then we want to help you. So you, you had mentioned 
earlier about some of the challenges of being in the Israeli army. So walk us through, is it hard to be from? Do they make it easy? Do they make it difficult? And what are the challenges that are encountered? Somebody who goes through the yeshiva system, goes to Hazri Yeshiva, and then goes from the base medrash off to the army. What's that like? What's that transition? And what are the challenges involved? So I think as a general rule, I would say, I think it's fair and accurate to say it absolutely is hard. You can believe, as I do, that defending Am Yisrael, defending Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah, but not all mitzvos are rejuvenating. Some mitzvos are hard and draining. And I think it's only fair and honest to acknowledge that this is a challenging and sometimes draining uh, type of mitzvah. I think it's important to clarify for your listeners, especially those who might not have themselves been involved or have children involved in the army, that I think there's a little bit of a misconception. It may, and I say only may because I'm not sure, it may have once upon a time been true that there were kind of official impediments and roadblocks to being from in the army. But in my experience in the last few years, both as a father, and now I now have a second son in the army, a son-in-law in the reserves. On Simplas Torah, I had three children, two sons and a son-in-law who were called to action. So in my family, parental capacity, and in my professional capacity with Talash, my experience is that there's almost, almost no contentious issues or barriers to observance in the official sense. The army is parv to positive for religious soldiers. It, it worst parv most of the time. However, and this is the key point, even if there's not a official or structural uh, impediment, the reality is we might call it the metzias is just incredibly, incredibly difficult. The nature of the work is so demanding on your physical strength and energy, on your mental energy, that it doesn't leave that much time to invest in your neshama, invest in your avodah Hashem. And again, if we had to make a priority, if you are somebody who is being entrusted with defending other people's lives, defending Eretz Yisrael, so of course that has to be your priority. Uh, you know, we would, to use a borrowed context, we wouldn't think it's admirable if the surgeon who's entrusted with treating you and saving your life was thinking about learning while you were on the table. Right When he's treating you, that's the mitzvah. So if you're on the front lines, if you're in the army, that is the mitzvah. There's no question. On the other hand, in terms of the long-term spiritual health of the soldier, if you spend too much time not focusing on your neshama, that's obviously going to be problematic. So there's a certain mitzvah, which is almost unavoidable, which creates a challenge. But it's not because the army is institutionally anti. That has not been my experience at all. But yet it's still a challenge. Now, why is that so different from somebody who goes out to the workplace and has a very demanding day and is working 10, 12 hours as well? That seems to be the mitzvah, and we have a mitzvah of somebody being very busy, and you're busy working, or you're busy in the in, in the tzavah. It seems to be pretty similar. I, I think you're right, and this is an area that you have more expertise than I do, uh, of workplace halacha and workplace challenges. I know that's one of your areas of expertise. Um, and I would say, as someone who never was in the secular workforce, um, that you probably are right other than the question of scale, meaning to say, yes, the army, I think, is an inherent positive in the sense that it's a mitzvah. You're defending Eretz Yisrael, you're defending uh, Jewish people's lives. But in terms of the problem balancing, if you will, where you put it, work versus investment in your Avodah Hashem, I think it's a somewhat fair comparison, except for the issue is simply scale. That is to say, it's not a nine to five job. It's not even a nine to eight or nine job. It's basically a 24 hour job. Again, obviously, they have time to sleep, eat, and even daven. But overall, it is a, you know, again, I, I was never a doctor. I never was a resident. But I, I have relatives and friends who've had that position. And I know though, when you're in that stage of life and you're on call 24-7 or you have overnight shifts, 
So that's what the that's what basically the army is like for your entire service. It's, it's enormous. You're in residency. I, I, again, I don't. Maybe I, I, I'm speaking uh, maybe out of turn, but from what I know secondhand, I think it's a fair analogy. Very good. Yeah. I, I interestingly, I met a neighbor of mine. He has a son who's in paratroopers called the San Khanim, and he said that the army makes it very easy for them. They have time to learn. They have time to daven. And he said it's been a very powerful thing for his son. His, his son went in saying that maybe I'm going to not go back to yeshiva. He said, I spent a year in yeshiva. He was going to go to the army, spent the second year in yeshiva. He's, then he went to the army, said, maybe I'll do four years in the army. And then this past Shabbos, he actually had some time. He took out a Gemara in the base measures that they had, and he decided, I'm going back to yeshiva right after this. So he said it's been a very positive and powerful experience for his son. First of all, that's a beautiful story. Um, in a certain sense, um, my son had a parallel story. He didn't go in thinking he was going to do one way or the other. But yeah, he was definitely contemplating when he was in the army. In fact, his more senior officers wanted him to become kind of an officer or a commander and extend his stay. And in the end, uh, thank God, because he was doing so well religiously, he was excited to go back to yeshiva uh, as soon as he can. But I just want to pick up on something you said in the name of your neighbor, which is that you said the army has, quote unquote, made it easy. There is time to daven and learn. And I want to reiterate, that's what I was referring to, which is that, yes, officially, they do allow for those things. I mean, if you're not in a war or it's not an emergency, the but is you may be beyond, beyond exhausted. In other words, you don't have a less responsibility. All the other chayalim have to be only, you know, available at seven in the morning. Gegesunt, you want to wake up at six in the morning to daven and learn, even though you got two hours of sleep? That's up to you. In other words, they, there are opportunities. They're not going to arbitrarily, that's my point, they're parv to positive. They're not going to arbitrarily prevent you, but you also can't lessen up as a soldier. You still have to do the same things everyone else is doing. And to be able to do that, Again, there are individuals who can do that, but on the larger scale, yes, it's very, very hard. And that's where Salash comes in. That's what we're there to help them for. With So let's talk about Salash then. Up till October 7th and past October 7th, what services do you supply for the Chayalim up till this, up to the 7th and thereafter? What has changed? I assume there were changes. Everything has changed. So what has changed for Chalash in their support of the, uh, the religious soldiers in the army? So I would like to break that into two questions, if I could, only because each one of them really needs its own few minutes, if I could. Um, they're really important questions. So before the war, and as you correctly said, that really was Salash uh, status quo, if you will. We've grown over the years, and we had approximately 10 different programs, if you will, um, each one slightly different to help the soldiers in active duty, but all of them more or less sharing a common thread, which is that the premise of our organization is that in order for a soldier to remain thriving and passionate about his Yiddishkeit while he's in the army, he has to remain connected to Talmud Torah, to Torah study. As the Medrash says, we believe that through and through. Obviously, a typical soldier, even on a good day, is not going to be putting in a full day of learning. And there are plenty of days where he doesn't have time for barely any learning. But his mentality has to be that he has to keep a connection, whether it's Shnai Mikra, Mishnah, or Gemara, whether it's five minutes a day or an hour a day, but there has to be some continuity and connection to learning. And therefore, all of our different programs were, are and maintain, intended to connect the soldiers to Talmud Torah and spark their passion, rejuvenate them when 
for obvious reasons, they've gotten uh, a little bit weaker and more exhausted, maybe a little bit more distant from that. So we are constantly making visits to army bases and running all sorts of programs. I would say the one that we were most famous for before the war, and I hope we'll be able to come back to it after the war, is when we visit army bases, we have specially produced small paperback editions of Gemaras. We've done, I think, seven or eight Masechtos, uh, and we divide up those Masechtos, even the relatively small Masechet, it could be a Megillah or a Tainus or Rosh Hashanah, into small volumes so that the books are relatively light and easy for the soldiers to carry in their pockets. Also, psychologically, it's not too big, it's not overwhelming, but it's not just giving out the Svarim, because who knows if anyone's going to learn them. When we do our army base visits, we will very often divide up the whole unit, the Machlaka, the Pluga, and we'll give out these Gemaras, and then we'll say, okay, to you guys, you're going to do Daf Bet, you're going to do Daf Gimel, you're going to do Daf Dalid. And therefore, in a relatively short period of time, it could be 30 minutes or 45 minutes, that unit, that brigade of soldiers is not just learning, which is wonderful in its own right, but they're making a Siyam. They finished sukkah, they finished beitzah, they finished sota, and then we bring the food and the music, and we have a lebedik siyum, and we the same soldiers who were crawling through the mud maybe 24 hours ago, or in a tent, or who knows where, now they have their friend on their shoulders, and they're singing Torah Hashem Tamima. It's the most incredible and thrilling thing, and I would say one of the highlights of my job is when I am personally involved in some of these siyumim, and the chayal will tell me afterwards, harav, atamachziro tili yeshiva, I feel like I'm back in yeshiva. Now, it's then we say, okay, who wants the Gemaras? And we give out full Masechtos of these Gemaras. And again, I don't want to kid anybody or be disingenuous. I'm not saying 100% of the Chayalim will take the Gemaras, or even 100% of the people who take the Gemaras will use the Gemaras. But we have a high hit rate. And this is one of the ways we keep people connected. Um, so that's one example. We have a Shabbos program, which brings Ruchnius and inspires people to add extra learning when they're on base uh, over Shabbos. And uh, a year or two ago, I was visiting a yeshiva before guys went to the army to talk about Salash, and a soldier was back visiting the yeshiva, and he told me, happens to be he was from Baltimore, not from my shul in Baltimore, but he was from Baltimore. He said to me, until he got exposed to our Shabbos program, he was struggling terribly in the army. But when he got exposed to our Shabbos program, the way he put it was that our Shabbos program changed his Shabbos, and the Shabbos then changed his whole army experience. So that's one or two examples of the kind of things we were doing uh, before the war. We have had to pivot uh, for two obvious reasons, or one obvious and one less obvious reason. Now, the obvious reason we had to pivot once the war started is because you can't do those kind of programs now. <laughs> People are just in, everyone's in Gaza, or on the Lebanon border, or fighting in Yehuda B'Shomron, exactly, Gush Etzion, etc. That that that's one obvious reason. The second, less obvious reason is that thank God Kanai Nahara, our staff has grown, but I am the only male staff member who's not called up to the army. Uh, how, big, how big is the staff typically? I think we're right now, I'm saying, I think we've grown to the point between some of the men and women, office staff and people on the different roles. I think we're, we're 12 or 13 people at the moment. So I think there may be one other male part time, uh, who is, uh, not called up. But I, as an American and of uh, middle age, shall we say, so I'm not a soldier, but every other person who I work with, including the founder of the organization, Reparatz Einhorn, has all been called up either literally on Simchas Torah or a few days afterwards. So we wouldn't have the manpower to do all the things we were doing anyway. So what we have pivoted to doing um, is a few different projects, which again, continue the theme and the mission of the organization, which is have, have adapted. The first major project we did is we, some of you, your audience may know if you visited Israel or you live in Israel, often you see the soldiers going to and from their army bases if they're off for Shabbos. They're very popular. They carry these huge backpacks where they bring you know, clothing for a week or two at a time. So we bought a of those backpacks, and we filled each backpack with over 40 pounds worth of Tashmishe Kedusha, sets of tefillin, hard carrying cases for the tefillin, what's called a Tvidanit, which especially now in the winter with the rain and the cold, the soldiers like to use that for their tefillin, 
tens of pairs of tzitzis, a talus godol, chamishi chumshei Torah in small paperback, set, numerous sets, tehillim, sidurim. One of the army rabbis who I gave one of these bags to referred to us as a, a mini Beit Knesset. And the idea was each one of these bags could service up to 30 soldiers somewhere in the field. And we basically, thanks to the generosity of donors, raised enough to we had a hundred of these bags. And each one was over 40 pounds. And I, and then some of our volunteers who helped us, traveled the north and the south of the country, giving these out to be mechazek, the soldiers in the field. In addition, there are svarim that I've published that we've been giving out in the army, others. And then most recently, and most excitedly, Ari, uh, I want you to know, and your, your audience to certainly know, an incredible initiative that's just a few weeks old, and that is that we partnered with Rav Usher Weiss to publish Minchas Usher in a special edition for Chayalim. It's an incredible thing. Anyone who's familiar with his Sfarim know, yes, it's true, he has a gift to write clearly. He's an incredible Balmazmir. But the stuff is on a high level. This is the highest level of Lomdus and Halacha. And we need to know because we need to be proud as a people. The Chayalim want Minchas Usher. They don't just want to learn Shnai Mikra or Dafyomi, as incredible as that would be during war. But they want more than that. The Chayalim want high-level learning whenever they can. And so this is the, the Minchas Asher on, on Parsha? Yes. Yeah, so we started off, I went, I, I, it started in the middle. I, we, I have to say, I didn't even think about it on my own. Chayalim came to me and said, Rabbi Gottlieb, you're doing so much for us. It's great. One more thing, if you could. You think we could get Minchas Asher? I didn't know. So I went to Rabbi Asher Weiss and I asked him and he agreed. And the first thing we did was voracious. And what we did was we took one halacha piece and one agata piece on each Parsha. And then again, we adapted it. We made it in a small paperback safer so the Chaylin could carry it in their pocket. It came out to be 200 and something, 280 something pages. We did voracious. We did a thousand copies. They were gone in four days. That's how many of the requests were. We did another thousand copies. All gone. If I had more time and more volunteers, I could have given out even more spar. Then just a few weeks ago, we did Minchas Asher on Hanukkah. We did 16 Simonim on Halacha Lamdis, 15 Ma'amorim on Machshava and Agada, 2,000 copies all given out in the week before Hanukkah. Incredible. Soldiers from the Lebanon border to literally in Gaza, learning Minchas Asher and everywhere in between. I'll tell you, I have so many stories, but just to suffice it with one, a few days before Hanukkah, I got a call from a, an army rabbi who said, I'm coming out for a few hours. Can I come to your house? I want to pick up 100 copies of Minchas Asher on Hanukkah. So when he came to my house, he told me the story. He is stationed in one of the Makom Knisa, one of the places where the soldiers go in and out before they go into Gaza. Soldiers came out of Gaza. Listen to this, Ari. The soldiers came out of Gaza. They went to this rabbi and said, Harab, we heard a rumor in Gaza. We heard that Salash is publishing Minchas Asher. Is it true? And can you get them for us? Wow. They came to my house. I said, yes, it's true. Here's 100 copies. Please bring them to some of those soldiers. And the best part is, two days later, he texted me and he said he himself, usually he's on the border, on the outside of Gaza, but they actually let him in to the northern part of Gaza after that had been, I guess, relatively conquered at that point. And he was visiting soldiers from Chazak them in Gaza. He said he went into some building, which the Chaylim had turned into like a makeshift shul. He went in there. And sure enough, what did he see? Soldiers giving sheer to each other from Minchas Asher. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Can you imagine how, what his chus this is? So this is some of the stuff that we're doing now in the pivot post-war. And I'm happy to say, Ari, you and I are speaking on a Wednesday night. I'm about to go to print with Minchas Asher on Shmos. And we're going to do 2,500 copies. And if we give all those out, we'll publish even more. So very exciting. The project is continuing and it's thriving. And how do you typically deliver it to them? 
So there are basically two broad ways. We have an office in Ranana. We have somebody who also has sperm of ours in Yerushalayim. I live in Ramat Beit Shemesh. And we tell any soldier anywhere or any one of their relatives or family members, if you can get to any one of those three places, we're happy to have you. We'll give you the that we'll give you the uh, a safer. But in addition to that, we go out into the field. As I say, it's not really so much my staff because my staff is all drafted and they're in uniform doing other things. So I myself, I try when, especially when we have a launch a new project like this, a few days in a row or a few days a week. I myself, I've driven up to a, a, one kilometer from Lebanon. I've gone all the way down to the Gaza border and I've been any, everywhere in between myself giving out Svarim and Bar Hashem. We have volunteers, volunteers from Beit Shemesh, volunteers from Ranana, people who are, when we get requests, that come into me directly or come into our office. And then we'll bunch together a few different bases and say to a certain volunteer, thank you so much. If you can go to the north for the afternoon and give out, here's a few places that are asking for Sparim or these other things that we're giving out. We also give out Havdalah and Kiddush things. We're giving out all sorts of different Tashmishay Kedusha, including uh, most popularly Ravashir Sparim. So you've been to a number of bases since October 7th. Many, many, many. Many. So what, what would you say the morale is? Are they feeling appreciated when you when you show up with all this stuff for them. And what I want to get at generally is is the hakarasa tov that they feel, that we feel towards them. But what's the general feeling, the morale that they have, and the efforts that Klali Shaw is making on their behalf, letter writing and et cetera, how is that being received on the basis? So I think that's really two different questions. One, in terms of their morale in general, is incredible. I mean, again, it is so inspiring and really humbling to see how committed they are, how unwavering they are in their determination, despite the obvious danger that they're in. Again, there's countless examples that I can give you uh, that express that. I'll just give you one brief one. One of my Talmudim from the yeshiva was not initially called up. And in fact, he was working with me on a project helping edit one of my future svarim. Um, and I knew that, you know, he had not been called up and he was a little bit frustrated. And then a few weeks after the war started, he sent me a text. Rabbi Gottlieb, Baruch Hashem, I've been called up. Just ponder what those words mean. Baruch Hashem. And that is, I think, not it's, it's special. I'm overwhelmed by it, but he's not unique. That is the feeling. The morale is of determination and of fortitude. And, and I, I, what I have said to them one-on-one and in numerous of my public speeches is that they have been chosen. They have been chosen by hashkacha, by fate, to be the tip of the spear to defend Am Yisrael in an event which, as I have said, if Yiddishkeit lasts 100 years or 1,000 more years, people will be talking about this Simchas Torah and what they're doing now to defend Am Yisrael. So they feel it in their bones and they are determined to represent us and to defeat our enemy. So that's their morale. In terms of the Hakara Satov that they feel, they are incredibly grateful, incredibly grateful for Salash. And I don't want to be uh, pretentious. I, we're not the only organization helping soldiers. There are many wonderful organizations and many wonderful people helping soldiers. And they are incredibly grateful. They are very grateful for what we're doing, but they're grateful for what everybody's doing. I mentioned at the beginning of the war, it was either the first night, it might have been Matzai Simchas Torah or the next night, I don't remember, but right in the beginning, I had a Zoom with our staff and I said, listen, we're going to continue doing what we do, which is spiritual support for the soldiers. And we're going to have to pivot, but eventually we came up with the idea of the backpacks I talked about and other things. I said, but you have to understand during war, Gashmius is also Ruchnius. So all of the physical support that people from America or Israel have been giving soldiers is also incredibly, incredibly uh, appreciated, whether it's the goggles and the vests and the socks and all those other things and the food and the letters. Yes, they're very, very appreciative of the letters because what letters represent 
is that Am Yisrael is with them. We've also done, for example, numerous barbecues, the kind of thing I never would have done before the war. It's not, not, I'm not against barbecue. I love meat as much as the next guy. But Salash doesn't do barbecues. That's not what we usually do. But since the war has started, it's been an incredibly powerful way to connect to soldiers, to make a Kiddush Hashem, to mechazek them 100%. And every time I go, especially if it's coming with donors from America who are sponsoring the barbecue, I always emphasize to the people, look, these are Jews from America or coming just to say thank you. And I, hundreds of examples, countless of examples of how appreciative and thankful they are to the soul, to the people who are helping because they feel Am Yisrael is behind them. They're not alone. So that's in terms of Akar Satov that the soldiers have to us and everyone who's doing things. If I understood you correctly, we're also asking another question, which is what should our Akar Satov be Towards them. And are they feeling that hakarasatov from us? I so I think the answer is again, at least in my experience, they are absolutely feeling it. And I think it's it's obvious that it's an imperative that we should feel hakarasatov uh, towards the Chayalim. I mean, there are so many makoros that emphasize the importance of hakarasatov as a halachic and as a Torah value. And we know the famous Madrashim about having hakarasatov even to inanimate objects. Like Moshe had to have in Mitzrayim to the sand or to the Nile. We know that the Chovas Alavavos, for example, says that Hakar Satov is the basis of all of Yiddishkeit. I think Ebenezer may say something similar, but that's a famous idea from the Chovas Alavavos. And more importantly than the positive need for Hakar Satov, I would be so worried, Rahman al-Islam, about someone who wouldn't have Hakar Satov to the Chayalim, someone who's Kafoi Tova. We know Chazal talk so powerfully about the damaging and corrosive effects of being a kafoitov. There's that famous medrash in the context of Yosef and Paro, and how Chazal tell us that because Paro didn't have kakar satov to Yosef, kishem shekafar Yosef. there's different nuschos and different versions of the medrash, kach or sofolios kafoi kofar ba'kadosh baruchu. If a person's not a makir tov to a human being, Mimele, he's eventually going to not be makar tov because he'll be kofar rachman al-islan and akadosh baruch And that's true even if it's an inanimate object. The Medrash talks about lotus on the Pasuk of lotus of Mitzri, right? Rashi tells us, it's brought down, even though the, the Medrash tells us, even though the Mitzrim were helping us for their own agenda. So you can say, well, maybe the soldiers or the government has their own agenda. It doesn't matter. And hakar satov, chazal are clear. First of all, the soldiers have good motivation. But even lo yitzoyer, lo yitzoyer, they didn't. It doesn't matter. They're on the front lines for us. If somebody helped you in the most basic, simple way, they took out your garbage, or they helped you in some other way, wouldn't you have a karsatov for them? Of course you would. Now, let's say they had a karsatov for you for something even more important, like they saved your life. A doctor saved your life. Of course you have a karsatov for them. But what if the doctor saved your life while risking his life? Would there be any limit to a karsatov you would have? Would it dawn anyone not to have a karsatov? So that's what the Chayalim are doing. They're literally trying to save our lives, and they're not doing it from the comfort of anyone's home. They're doing it while they risk their own lives. So it's abundantly clear and obvious we have to have a karsatov to them. And oiva on the person or a people who wouldn't have a karsatov, I don't even want to think about what that would mean or do to such an neshama. Of course you have to have a karsatov. It's elemental. It's basic. Right. So some of the concerns that they voiced is that the army represents kochi yadi, that strength, and it's all us, and forgetting our Kaddish Baruch Hu. is that something that you've seen as you've visited the, the bases, that there's a a, a a theory or a belief in Kochim Ve'otzim Yadi? So again, the, the, the army was about 200,000 strong, before Simchas Torah, 
And they called up in the largest call up in Israeli history, 300,000 more soldiers, right? They're beginning to wind down a little bit because Baruch Hashem, the war is going well and advancing. But for the last two months, there's been about a half a million soldiers. It would be preposterous for anyone, pro or con, to make one generalized statement about a half a million people. However, I could tell you that in the people that I have met, the people that I know, and I don't just mean the ones wearing yarmulkes, there is abundance, abundance of recognition of the Nisim Viniflos that every time they're in danger, that Akash Baruch was with them. Is that everybody every time? I assume not. But is every doctor every time realize that it comes from Akash Baruch Hu? Do you, do you not go to a doctor? Do you not say thank you to the doctor, even if the doctor himself doesn't realize that Akash Baruch is helping him? Of course, it's not one, one thing. I don't see even the relevance. Yeah, I, I, I share that. If we're concerned about the army and Kochimotzimiadi, we also shouldn't go out to work because many people, when they're successful in the workplace, they also have that thought of Kochimotzimiadi. So maybe we should stop working as well. Again, I, I just want to, I, I agree with you. I just want to clarify the point I was making, which is that that isn't a sayon for the soldier. Just like it's, it's an for everybody in life. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly my point. It's an assignment for the successful businessman and it's an assignment for the doctor. But none of it changes the hakar satov you have to have if the businessman helped you, if the doctor helped you, or if the soldier helped you. I, I don't see the relevance. Right, that may, that makes sense. Talk to me also, uh, last question for you, Achtus. Achtus, do you feel that at the army? Do you feel that worldwide? What are your thoughts on that? And how do we continue it going? Uh, I, uh, that, that's the second question. Uh, you, you you cheated with that one. Um, like it on the record, the first one. Uh, Halavai. No, the, so the first one is, yes, I, I, I think it's un- incredible. Uh, it, one of the first or second week of the war, uh, I participated with uh, some other Rabbanim in a uh, kind of a Sifa, a Chizok in Beit Shemesh. And I talked there, the theme then of that talk was the unprecedented Achtos wave that was surging through the Jewish people in Israel. And I said there, and I still believe it, that it's the most unified I have seen Israel and really the whole Jewish people in my lifetime, at least. And no one who's even older than me has disagreed either. It is unprecedented and beautiful and inspiring how much access there is, whether it's on the political right and left, which is, we all know, was at loggerheads in the last year plus before the war, and even within our own from community. Again, as I said, uh, you know, at the outset, uh, we all know that uh, historically the issue of the army has been a for right or for better or for worse, it's been a, uh, a divisive issue in the firm community. And I'm sure that still remains in some circles, but much of what I have seen is incredible uh, coming together. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden people who never were served in the army are all of a sudden going to serve. I'm not saying that at all. But the recognition of Akar Satov, of we're in this together, we're all one. I mean, the same son I alluded to before. So he happens to have a lot of connections and very close with a lot of parts of the Hasidic world. And even recently, as the other day, my son had a 72-hour leave, he was home, and somebody from uh, a Hasidic community not that far from us was making a wedding and actually invited my son to a Sheva Brachas, and it was actually in their house. And he brought my son into the kitchen, he couldn't understand why, and he showed my son what was hanging on his refrigerator, a petek, a note that had my son's name, my other son's name, and my son-in-law's name that he'd been davening for him for the last six, uh, seven, eight weeks. And there are so many other examples. And that speech I told you about before that I gave uh, in the earlier parts of the war, I shared a story of a barbecue or something that was being done by Haredi volunteers, Hasidic specifically volunteers for soldiers. And one of the soldiers getting his sandwich said to this uh, Hasid, Eich korim lecha. What is your name? To which the Chassid responded, Karim Li Am Yisrael. And that sums up, I think, what most, again, I can't say everybody, but I think that's the feeling of most people, including in the Haredi or the Hasidic community, and certainly in the uh, religious Zionist community and the secular community, there right now is a unprecedented 
feeling of what we have in common is more than what we what divides us, and that there'll be time to deal with the other stuff another time. But right now, we are focusing on our essential uh, our essential brotherhood, and I think it really is uh, incredibly powerful and a surge in you know the silver lining of what has otherwise been an incredibly difficult two plus months. Beautiful line there, Karim Li Am Yisrael. All of us should internalize that, Amir Tzashem. That's really beautiful. Rabbi Gottlieb, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure having you on the show. If anyone wants to reach out to you, reach out to Salash, if anyone wants to participate in the publications of the books, how would they get in touch? So our website is salash.org, T-Z-A-L-A-S-H.org. And if you go on that website, there's also an opportunity in a way of uh, reaching me or uh, or emailing me. Um, and um, I'm happy to hear from anybody who wants to be in touch. That would be uh, wonderful. And uh, we obviously uh, certainly appreciate help. If somebody wants to email me directly, they can email me at dovid, D-O-V-I-D, D-O-V-I-D, at salash.org.il, T-Z-A-L-A-S-H.org.il. So the website is salash.org, and my email is dovid at salash.org.il. Rabbi Gali, we should keep up the wonderful work. Yakshakach and keep out putting out those for him. Mishakach to you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Wasserman. Joining us now is Rabbi Daniel Heyman. Rabbi Heyman is originally from South Africa, and he spent many years learning in the Yeshiva Gadol of Johannesburg, and then in the Mir Yeshiva. He is currently the Rosh Kolel of Kolel or Israel Mir in Tel Zion. He spent nine years researching and writing the Sefer Hakaras Tov Kahalacha. That's all about Hakaras Tov, 300 pages, and he's currently working on a second edition. Rabbi Heyman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. I'm glad to have you have written the perfect safer for today. So thank you so much. So why don't we start with the basics? Oftentimes we talk about hakarasatov for this, hakarasatov for that. Is this something that is halachically mandated? Is there a real source? Is there a makor for hakarasatov? Or is this just a, a good thing to do? There are many, many sources for hakarasatov. The most famous source is Lot to Tevi Mitzri Kegera Yitabatso. You should not hate the Egyptians. Do not despise them because you're a stranger in their land. And the Gemara learns from here that if somebody helped you, you should not do anything to hurt them. The second source is a very interesting source. It's brought from Rav Hirsch. The Pasuk says, And we all know that Chazal say, we learn from here that we must emulate the ways of a Baruch Hu. Says Rav Hirsch that we learn from a Baruch Hu HaKashbaruch Where do we see this? When we do mitzvahs, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives us schar for the mitzvahs. Mm. So to us, when we people do us favors, we have to return the favor just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu does. A third source I'd like to discuss is Poshat the Seichel. It's logical. A person does you a favor, you should return the favor. Says the Chuvat Salababos. Then it's logical. It's a Seichel Yasha. A person helps you. He does something good. You should return the favor. A Jew with a straight head understands that they should be makutov. As, as the Gemara says, Psukalamali Svarahu, right? Oh, very good. So it could be according to that. It's Mamish Mitzvah Doraita. Right. right. Very good. So in an instance that Kakarasatov is mandated, mm-hmm. Is there an Isser to not give Hakarasatov when it would be halachically mandated? Rav Moshe says in Shuvah that he says, Isu gado liot It is a serious Aveira to be a Kafoy Toiva. And in light of the sources we mentioned, we can understand why. It's an Aveira. Mamash an Aveira. An Isser. Isu gado, Rav Moshe says. Right? Not a small one, a big, <laughs> right. one. A big one. So, so if we talk about Hakarasatov, mm-hmm. I owe somebody... 
gratitude. They've done me a favor, and we'll talk about what would mandate Hakarasatov and what what won't. How do I fulfill that obligation of Hakarasatov? Is it simply that I feel indebted to the individual? Do I verbally have to thank him, or do I have to do something more significant than that? Write him a letter, or do him a favor in kind? What's mandated halachically in order to fulfill the requirement of Hakarasatov? This is a very important question, and really goes to the heart of what Hakarasatov is. Let's discuss three stages of Hakarasatov. The first stage is the awareness that is required. The second stage are the emotions that are acquired. And the third stage is the actions that are acquired. Firstly, the awareness. Obviously, the person is not aware. They can't be maketov, right? So there are two parts to awareness, the who and the how much. Who did the toiba? And secondly, what is the toiba? How much is it worth to me, right? Often we, we see things that happen to us. We're not aware. We don't pay attention who's actually doing it for us. And often, even if we pay attention, we don't value the toiba like we should. I like to give the example of my socks. I wake up in the morning, it's pretty dark outside, and I always find my socks in the cupboard. And it's an amazing thing. I never see anybody putting them there, but somehow they always find their way to the cu- my cupboard. If I don't think about it, how can it be my kitov? Who? How do they get there? So obviously, the only one who could be doing it must be my wife, who's taking care of me, right? So the who there is my wife. The how much? Well, let's think about it. Unfortunately, sometimes the socks, or the last time I see them, they're lying on the floor dirty, right? Somehow, they must have flown from the floor into the laundry basket, from the laundry basket into the washing machine, from the washing machine to the dryer, back into the basket, separated, paired, and then they somehow flew back into my cupboard. How did it happen? Somebody worked very hard to do that. That was a tremendous chesed that my wife did for me. So the who is my wife and the how much is all the stages and all the work she put in for me and the benefit I have that when I wake up in the morning, I see fresh socks sitting there ready for me. And her not getting upset at you for not putting it into the laundry basket. She's a big study. That's she the biggest She's a big study guy. She's given up a long time ago. <laughs> Um, so that's the first stage, the who and the how much. The second stage of the emotions, right? We've, it's very hard for us to express emotions, but Rabbi Yonah says that when a person does a favor for you, you have to express Ava to him. You have to love them. You have to care about them, right? It's a very hard thing for us, like I said. But still, this is the goal. We have to know what the story say. We have to express care and love for the person who has helped us. The third stage are actions. And actions have two parts. There's the do's. And the don't do's. Let's start with the don't do's. If a person does you a favor, you should try very hard never to hurt that person, never to offend that person. Ah, you shouldn't hurt anybody. You can't, you could, be many swearing in the Torah not to hurt somebody. So the Sorim say that when it comes to Akhsatov, if somebody's helped you, you have to be extra, extra careful not to hurt them anyway. All right? Recently, someone suggested a shira for my for my son and the, the, the girl's father helped me tremendously. I said to my wife, you have to be very, very careful when you do investigations to the shidduch that you shouldn't say anything that could get back to them and make them feel offended anyway. You have to be extra careful. He helped me tremendously when I went to your shiva and I have to remember that for the rest of my life. The second state, the answer is, is that sometimes it's mutter to hurt somebody. When is it mutter? We know the concept of loshen horror the toilets, right? The person is about a shidduch, about your neighbor, you know bad things. Under certain circumstances, you're allowed to tell them that. You have an obligation to tell them that, right? But when that person's done you a favor, you should try not to be the one to tell. You should try and find somebody else to do it, right? Don't be the one to do it because it was Mark, he did you a favor. Try and be him talk and say, you know what? The other neighbor knows him much better. Maybe go to him. So that's, that's when, that we learn from the fact that you have to be careful not to hurt somebody. A savior of Aaron Kotler, that when someone did a favor for his yeshiva, he could never say a bad word about them. It doesn't matter how bad they were, the bad things they did. They did a favor for the yeshiva, he could never utter a bad word about these people. So that's, that's the don't do's. What about the do's? 
So in the do's, there are two stages. Firstly, you have to say thank you. Now, some people would say it obvious, that's obvious. And some people say, what are you talking about? That's the mean I go going. That's, that's not Jewish value. That's just etiquette, good manners. It's like parrots. You say thank you, say thank you, say thank you, right? But there are many, many sources that a person has to say thank you to the person who has helped them, right? It's actually very interesting that Rav Lucham gives a scathing rebuke to the B'nai Torah and Mir. It's actually written in Das Torah. And he says, you're not Peseda. You don't say thank you enough. You think the main thing is to feel it in your heart. And you think, I don't want to just say thank you. It's so hollow. We see people People say thank you, it's shallow, they don't really care. He says you have to say thank you, and if you don't, you've done an Aveira and you mush that. He gives it to him for not saying thank you enough. So a person has to say thank you. This is a Torahic value. It has to come from the heart, it has to be real, and you have to express your thanks. How do you express thanks? So there are many ways. You could say thank you, or you could give the person a broth. You could say Tiskila Mitzvot, Yesha Kokacha, right? At the brothel, there's sources that say you could praise the person. For example, you could say, well, that was so nice of you, so thoughtful of you, you're such a kind person. Praise the person is a way of expressing thanks. Or a person could even just express their thanks physically. Wave a hand at somebody, right? A person lets you into the lane on the road, right? You're not going to get out the car and say thank you, right? But you could wave at them. That's also a valid form of saying thank you. And finally, a person should turn a favor. Many people think that it's enough to say thank you so much, so much, and they get off cheap, and then they can forget about it. But there are many, many sources in the Rishonim and Nachronim and Chazal that a person has to return the favor. The person that helped you needs a favor from you. You have the ability to help them. You have to return the favor. Could be years later, but you have to remember and try and return the favor. So you don't have to manufacture something. You, somebody does you. As Chaz said, you don't have to return it in kind until they have a need. And that's your that. If they need something, yeah, that's what it would seem. Okay, so so we're, we're in a situation right now in Amir Tashem. We'll get to talk about the, the war and the Chayalim mm-hmm. and the mysterious mm-hmm. nefesh that they're having. Mm-hmm. But what really came to fore with mm-hmm. that is that sometimes somebody can do you a chesed and mm-hmm. it's easy. Right. No problem. I'll right. take out your garbage for you or whatever it is. And it's easy. They're on the way to doing something anyway for themselves. They'll pick you up a yogurt in the store because they're in the store right. anyway. And sometimes the other side of the extreme is what somebody closes up their life mm-hmm. and everything that they've been involved in. They leave their job. They leave their yeshiva, whatever it may be. And they are most of nefesh for not for a minute or an hour or a day, mm-hmm. but ongoing. And, and not only that, uh, the time commitment, but the tremendous mysterious nefesh endangering their lives and unfortunately worse than that as we see nowadays so is there a gradation is there a scale as to when somebody is a recipient of gratitude that they have to have awareness obviously as mm-hmm. the mysterious nefesh that somebody does mm-hmm. and the feelings and the emotions and the actions and the do's and the not do's is there, there going to be a gradation based on the benefit received and the mysterious nefesh of the doer of the test said or is it simply going to be the same regardless? Give the person a bracha, say thank you, and if they need something in the future, you have an obligation to, to return in kind what they've done for you. Um, it would seem logical that the more effort a person invests in the chesed and the more beneficial the chesed is, the more one needs to show hakusatov. But in truth, I don't have explicit proofs for this. So it would be logical, but I, I can't prove it. Svarahu. <laughs> yeah, Svarahu. Okay, okay now, now, what if somebody gives you a benefit but did not intend to do so. I don't know the person who cleaned up the whole best medrash because he wanted it clean and everyone benefits from that. So is there, is there a mitzvah requirement of Hakara Satov in that situation also? So we know that Moshe saw a mitzvah fighting with the Jew, right? And he killed the mitzvah. And because he killed the mitzvah, the Egyptian, he had to flee to Midian. When he came to Midian, he saw Benot Yitro at the well, right? And he saved him from the, from the shepherds. And they went home and the father said to him, how do you come home so fast today? So they said, Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu. An Egyptian saved us. So Midras says, I understand. An Egyptian saved him. It wasn't Egyptian. It was Moshe. Moshe wasn't Egyptian. He was a Jew. 
Says the Medrash, what happened was like this. They went to Moish and said, They fulfilled Hakus at all. And they said, thank you, right? Moish said, okay, you, you should show Hakus to me, but you should also know there's somebody else you show Hakus to. That mystery that tried to kill the Jew, and I killed him and came down here, it's because of him that I saved you, and you have to show Hakus to him. To the Ish dead mystery. mystery. To the dead mystery. It's a strange thing. Says Rakhaim Shimonevitz, we see from here that when a person helps us, regardless of intention, they don't even know they were helping us. We still have to market them tough. And they didn't want to help. They didn't want to help. They wanted to hurt. But you still have to market them tough. There's a beautiful story about Rav Meir Chadesh, the Rosh Hashiva, the Mashkiach of Hebron. They used to tell his Talmudim that when he was in Yeshiva in Europe, he used to stay by a certain Sandlara, a shoemaker. And the shoemaker used to work at night. He used to bang, bang, bang. And his man couldn't fall asleep. One night after another, he couldn't fall asleep with the terrible noise. Eventually, he learned to drown out the noise. And he learned to sleep with the noise. And he said to his Talmudian, I have such a to talk to that Sanlar because now I can learn in any situation. It doesn't matter what noise there is. I can drown it out and still learn. So for sure, the Sanlar had no intention to help him. But the fact is that I could talk because so, so, he got benefit from it. Right. <laughs> bottom line. Bottom line there. So, so that's a situation when somebody gives you a benefit but did not intend to do so. What happens if you have a person who was intending for his own benefit? I'm doing this just for me, but somebody happened to benefit as well. Very practical question. Most people help us with some uh, um, undermining, underlining uh, intention that they want to get something back. So there's a famous Gomorrah that we all know about Rashbi and Rebi that they're sitting in the base of Medrash and discussing uh, the Romans. Are the Romans good or the Romans not good? Rebi came along and said, the Romans are amazing. Look at the bathhouses they built. Look at the roads they built. The bridges they built. The the, the shvakim, the, 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 the markets they built. Incredible. Look at the incredible things they did. And Rashbi said, ah, come on. Everything they did was for themselves, for their taxes, for their own pleasure. Why, why were they not a big deal? Comes along with Moshe, Moshe Feinstein, and he suggests that their machlokit was a machlokit, and Akas at all. Rebbe held, right? Rebbe held, at the end of the day, we're getting benefit. Who cares what their intention is? And Rashbi held, Mapitoy. Their intention is for themselves. We don't have to market them tough. So what's Allah like when you have a machlokit, Rebbe Shimon, and Rebbe Yehuda? The cloud is we pass like Rebbe Yehuda. So it would seem from there that you have to have to to somebody, even if they're trying to do it for themselves. So and there are many other sources that prove this, that we have to focus on, even if somebody's doing it for their own good. That's fascinating. I love that, Mark Locus. That's great. That's really great. Now, now the next step. What, what happens in a situation when it's their job? They're getting paid for it. They're obligated to do it. And I'll give you an example. You go to the dentist, you go to the doctor, and that's their job. They're supplying a service. I pay them. I'm paying this individual to yeah. fill my cavity or whatever the case may be. I'm paying them. They're receiving what they requested, mm-hmm. and that's our relationship. You fix my tooth, mm-hmm. I'll pay you. Do I still have to say thank you? And maybe does the doctor have to say thank you to me because I paid? That is a very, very good question. It's very unclear. Maybe both people have hypersoft to each other. Maybe none of them have hypersoft because we had a deal over here. You do this, I do that. We have a deal. This wasn't anyone doing a tova. We both had something coming out of this. I don't, I have, it's a very tricky issue and I have many questions about it. Kashas from Kazal, but it definitely seems from the Bali Musa, Rav Wolbi, and from, and from Rav Friedlander that both sides have to have Hakus talk to each other. Interesting. And, and how about the situation when it's a non-Jew that did you a chesed? You're walking in the airport and you see a, uh, 
a soldier mm-hmm. uh, in the U.S. Army, or it could be mm-hmm. any situation. You mm-hmm. buy something in a store, and the person helping you mm-hmm. is not Jewish. Mm-hmm. Is there a dean of Hakarasatov as well in that situation? Absolutely. The Shlabrig is a very interesting ride from Parshas Yigash. We know that there was a whole Maase between between um, y- Yosef and Ashes Potiphera, right? And there was a whole Balagane, and eventually they were taken to court about, in front of the priests of Egypt. The priests looked, heard both sides of the case, and they decided that Yosef was innocent. Yosef had tremendous hakkas to talk to them. So later on, when he became the king of Egypt, and all the Egyptians were selling their land so they would have food, Yosef wanted to return the favor. So what did he do? He told Paro, please give them a meal guide, give them a stipend, and if they have a stipend of food, they want to sell their land. Why did he do that? He wanted to show Hakusatov to, to, to the Komarin, to the, the, the priest of Egypt. Says the Shah, we learn from there, that a person has, has to have Hakusatov, even to a non-Jew, and this is brought in many, many other sources, in many sources in Chazal, in the post-game, that a person has to market to everybody, even to non-Jews. Interesting. Fascinating. Okay, next next step. Another question for you. I'm sorry for bombarding you with so many questions. You do somebody a chesed, and, uh, or somebody did you a chesed. Somebody did a chesed for you. Mm-hmm. So you are indebted. You've mentioned Rabbi Kadlo before that somebody did a chesed for the yeshiva. You can never mm-hmm. speak negatively about the person. So mm-hmm. let's talk about that situation. Uh, somebody did me a chesed, but he offended me thereafterward. A couple of years later, you're I'm nice to him for two years. Yeah. And then he was really offensive. Mm-hmm. It could be the Gabai in Shul. Mm-hmm. You know, people sometimes complain about the Gabai, not in the Shul Davenin. The Gabai is a close friend and a lovely individual, and everyone loves him. But let's assume that the Gabai did something to you. He spoke negatively. He didn't give you an aliyah for a year. Whatever the situation mm-hmm. is, and now you're upset at him. Mm-hmm. And let's say that's a valid. You're validly upset at him. Mm-hmm. Do you still have to say, he did me a favor at one point, and I still have to be kind to him? Or can I, at a certain point, say, you know, it's over. I was had a karasatov for him for a couple of years, and now I'm done. This is a very, very practical question. Rabbi Yaakov Hagis, who wrote the Hilfus Katanos, bemoans the fact that we see everyday situations where somebody could help their friend for years and years and years, and then one day they insult their friend and their friend wipes them out of their lives, cancels them out of their lives, doesn't want anything to do with them and becomes his enemy. And he says, how can it be? This person has helped you for years and years and suddenly he does one thing wrong, it's objectively it's wrong, and then you forget about everything that happened? That's not the Jewish way. And we learn this from the Apostle, if we think about it, how can we talk to the Egyptians? Would we want to have Hakkos talk to them? Yes, it's true, there was a famine and they went down to Egypt and they were all saved. But what happened afterwards? There was a Holocaust, maybe worse than the Holocaust. They took babies, they killed babies, they enslaved us for years and years and years. Why should we focus talk to these disgusting people? The Torah says, don't hate them, because you have to remember the good times. When they helped you before, right? Lord save Mitzvah, the Rambam learns from there that it doesn't matter what a person does afterwards. You have to muck it off for what the person did before. There's a story about Ramosh Shmuel Shapiro, the Rosh Shiva of Be'yakov, that he one day gets an invitation to a wedding, and his wife looks at the invitation and says, we're not going. He said, why are you not going? She said, this woman, this girl, she did such terrible things to us. She embittered our lives. She calls us Soros. The Rosh Shiva said, that's true. But remember years ago how she helped us? She helped us. She did us a toiva. We can't forget that toiva. We're going to this wedding. It doesn't matter what she did. So the answer is no. Bad things do not cancel out good things. It's a very, very hard thing to do. But when a person does that, they look at people in a different light. They start, look, start, stop focusing on the half-empty cup, and they start focusing on the, on the full cup. Look at everything you did. How could you, how could you forget all the good things you did when he did, even though he did bad things, but how can you forget it when he did such good things to him? 
And we have to remember that and mark it up even for the good. That's a wonderful muster. Let's get to our topic, directly on topic. Let's talk okay. about the unfortunate war that Kali Yisrael is involved in. So we've seen a, a couple of Rosh Yeshiva or Rabbanim that have come out and said they have concerns about being makir tov to the soldiers who are being Moser Nefesh, and they have their reasons for it. And the question is, if, before we talk about that, let's talk about historically, as you were researching the book, nine years of researching the book, HaKarasatov, did you find stories about Gedolim or Russia Yeshiva of former generations in what their views were, how they handled the situation. This is not the first war that Klal Yisrael is uh, involved in. So what, what, what did you see during your research when it came to precedence, halakhic precedence by former Gedolim and also the great Rosh Yeshivas of former generations? If you want to see a precedent, so you can look at the Malbim in Shoftim Perik Tet Pasuk Yudzayin. Says the Malbim like this: Im lo haya Yerubavel matzlech mechama. That even if Yerubavel wasn't successful in the war, haitim chayim lo toiva. You were chayv to makim tov. Bavu shishlich nafshol mineged because it was moist and nefesh for him. You have to make it tov. So even if he wasn't successful, we lost the war. But he tried to help you. You have to be moist and nefesh for him. There's no reason in the world why we should not have to be make tov to soldiers. There's no swore if you learn that the, the the, 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 the sugi is why we should not have to be marketed to soldiers. Practically, I spoke recently to one of the sons of Chaim Shmulevitz. He said Rav Chaim Shmulevitz was emphatic that we have to be marketed to the soldiers. He said the army is an institution we have issues with, but the soldiers themselves, absolutely, we have to be marketed to. There's another Godel today, Ramosh Sadka, one of the prominent Sfaradik doing him today. He's constantly telling people, we have to be marketed to the soldiers. People are saying, Rebbe, but I don't understand. You're constantly saying people should not enlist into the army. You're against what's going on. The Bani Torah go to the army. He said, I don't understand the connection. I hold they shouldn't go to the army. But why once they go into the army, we have to market talk to them. Practically, I've expressed the talk. That's a different story. Why? The army as an institution is, has certain pitfalls for a from Jew, certain Ashkofas that we don't agree with. So now we always got a problem. If we shark the talk, are we going to be connected to people and to Ashkofas that, that are against the Torah Ashkofa? So this is the purview of Dodi Israel, who, when we should do it, how we should do it. That is not in my, my line of work. But what I could suggest is practical way to ask the top without getting into, into problems. Ramosh Tzadka tells people, do something as a switch for the soldiers. Learn harder. Maybe have, accept on yourself a small tiny stibur. Small things, say Perik Tehillim, small things where you don't engage yourself directly with the soldiers. But you are personally expressing Hakasatov to the soldiers. What do I personally do? I firstly dive in for the soldiers. But secondly, what I am working on myself is something we mentioned before. We mentioned when people do a toiva, you should be careful never to hurt that person. How does it apply practically? There are many public figures in Israel whose actions are not particularly savory, right? And often I feel tremendous anger towards them. And, and a person wants to feel, how could you do that? It's the terrible. Perhaps a person wants to speak against them without getting to Lush and horror. But then I say to myself, hold on, this person served on me for years and years to protect my lives, our lives. Often they served in elite units, and they served more than the three years, five years, ten years in the army. This person was moist and nephish to protect me, right? So on the one hand, I don't agree with what he's doing. But on the other hand, I have to be special careful not to say anything bad against him. If it's a big sorry, so it could be muta. But the other story, absolutely not. This person helped me. And I've got to remember, as much as I disagree with the person and his Ashkofas, he did a wonderful thing for me and for the Jewish people, and I have to mark it off to him. So practically speaking, you're passing by a chayal. Yeah. He's standing there guarding yeah. where you're living. Yeah. Do you go by and say thank you, or do you not go by and say thank you? I mean, this is the chayal. This is not the institution. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not sure if I'm right for not saying anything, but I think he would think it's a little bit weird if you walked up to him and said thank you. I don't know. I think he would look at you and say, what do you want from me? 
I, I don't know, but it's a good question. Maybe I should. Maybe you should say thank you too. I personally do. I, oh, you do? I do every yeah. chayal I see. I go over and say. Do they thank appreciate you. it? Or love it. Oh, they love it. They love it. Yeah. They absolutely love it. But other assistance yeah. that can be giving. There are a lot of people that are nowadays cooking for chayalim. Right. And I have relatives doing that, or people are writing letters, and Chayalim do appreciate that, baking kalas, etc. What, what is your thought? You're helping not the institution and the Ashkafas, but you're helping the individuals. Uh, yeah, the question is, what is more valuable, right? That's valuable, and the spiritual power that you give them by, by doing this is also very valuable, right? Well, it's and not one or the other. It's, 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 right, it could be. I hear you. The question is, how far does a person have to go in order to make it all right? Where's the limit and a person's life and their and their obligations? But I, I hear you. It could be that there would be a, definitely a value in doing it. Is it something we should be doing? And everybody's obligated to. I don't know. I have to think about that, right? Uh, Rabbi Heman, I just want to push on this point again. Mm-hmm. When it comes to Hakarasatov, some Rosh Yeshiva, just a few, have come out saying, "Be careful, mm-hmm. don't get too close to Chayalim," and others have said, "Embrace them and show Hakarasatov." You wrote the book. You wrote the book. Hakrasatov Kehalacha. Somebody comes to you and says, Rabbi, Chayalim are being most nefesh. They are dying every day. What do we do? What do we do? As I said, absolutely, we have to feel Hakrasatov. We have to be careful not to hurt soldiers in any way. We have to perhaps thank them if we have the opportunity to thank them. How we express that in a practical sense, that is a question that is very delicate. Like I said, on the one hand, we have to show it. It's a choiva to do that. On the other hand, we have to know that sometimes we could be affected. And this answer, the question is dependent on who the person is. Some people are very strong in identity and will not be affected. Other people have a less strong sense of self-esteem and perhaps it could affect them in a bad way. Some people are very strong ashkofas. Nobody can move them. And some people don't have such strong ashkofas and we're worried that they could see things get excited about the army and the power of the army and perhaps it could move him a little bit away from the correct Ashkofa. This is something that's very, very delicate and each person should ask their own das Torah. Rabbi, I just, I just want to understand a little bit more. What's the concern if somebody is uh, being makirtov to a soldier mm-hmm. and you're simply sowing an acknowledgement and an appreciation? How can that take away or baking or whatever the mm-hmm. act is as opposed to to feeling emotionally and davening for them? What, what could be the negative of... of mm-hmm showing that appreciation? It's a good question. I don't have a concrete opinion on the matter, but what I could say is like this. We know that in Israel in the Torah of Lord Tachanem, included in that Israel, uh, the Gemara says, is that a person is not allowed to say, Kamane e goize. We're not allowed to praise a non-Jew. Obviously, at times that it's mutar, you ask the person about a doctor, is a good doctor, then we mutar. But start to go and praise somebody who lives a lifestyle and has values that aren't our values. Why is that a problem? The Rishonim say, because when you praise somebody, you come close to them. And why do we say, we, you, you look up to them? You always oh, amazing. I want to be like that. Why, for example, do we tell our kids to Sadikim? Because when you tell the story about that Sadikim, you're all excited and he did this and he's such a must-mean. And look how he helped somebody. The kid says, oh, wow, that's amazing. I want to be like that, right? People work on emotions. They feel your emotions. They feel your excitement. And they want to be like the Sadik. So when you're walking in the street and you see the soldier and you say, you're so amazing. You saw this. And the kid looks up at the soldier, big, strong guy with a big gun, and he serves in some elite unit. And the kid thinks, cool, that's amazing. What does the kid think? I want to be like that. And that's why it's dangerous. So now the problem is, when you're interfacing directly with people that, that are doing things that we don't necessarily think people should be doing, that is a danger. It's a danger for kids. And even it's a danger for big kids because everybody's like that. We all work on emotions. When something is praised, when something is amazing, when, it's, when people are exciting about something, we want to do it. Why, when they have a duff yoimi, does do they invest millions and millions of dollars to make an amazing party when they make a seal? Why are they doing that? They're doing it so the next generation will say, wow, I also want to finish the duff, right? I want to be part of it. Look how amazing it is. That's the danger. Again, 
I don't know what the right way to deal with this is, and it could depend on the person, but that is a very, very real danger, especially in our world, where people don't work on the intellect, they work on emotions. So we have to be very, very careful. How about if you have a chayal that is a Shomer Torah Mitzvah? Mm-hmm. He's got pears behind mm-hmm. his ear. He's got his tzitzis out, mm-hmm. and he's there. He's protecting Klal Yisrael, mm-hmm. and that's his motivation. I'm here to help Klal Yisrael. We have so many examples of people that are now in, in Miluim, not because they were called up, but because what they want to help. And we have examples of people on October 7th that went down, not being called up because we want to protect Klal Yisrael. And to me, if we have an example of a chayal that's a Shomer Torah mitzvah that's mm-hmm. helping Klal Yisrael, and that's his motivation, maybe that is a, a good thing for our, our children to emulate. It may not be go to the army, but it could be work for Zako or help out somehow Klal Yisrael. Uh, most people aren't learning 16 hours a day, even mm-hmm. even uh, people who are learning. So it, it could be a nice motivation. We tell them these are people People are helping the, helping the claw and mm-hmm. educate the kids that there are ways to help the claw. It doesn't have to be with a big gun, mm-hmm. um, but it maybe it is. I don't know. Guarding a yeshiva, but there are certainly benefits, and these could be amazing examples as well for our children that need examples nowadays. Well, if you want to teach your kid the concept of giving and donating your time and helping other people, and you're confident that your kid will understand that we help people, but not necessarily in that way, because our Dodi has told us not to go to the army, and that would be a wonderful example. If you don't have that ability, then you have to be careful. Everybody has different abilities with their kids, and they have different ways of educating their kids. Okay, thank, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Rabbi Heyman, what a pleasure meeting the author of the book, and you should have tremendous luck in getting the second edition. Let us know when it is, and we'll, we'll uh, let the Oilam know that they should uh, purchase the book. Thank you so Man, much. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Joining us now is Rabbi Josh Friedman. Rabbi Friedman worked on Wall Street for a number of years until moving to Israel. 20 years ago, he founded a charity called Israel Select Charity Fund, which targets specific charitable needs in Klal Yisrael. 100% of donations are given to the needy and especially to causes that other people don't get to. Rabbi Friedman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Ari, for having me. A pleasure. So Rabbi Friedman, I'd love to find out a little bit about you. The Israel Select Charity Fund, is that your full-time job or do you do other things on the side? Ari, very good question. My main job, actually I have two jobs. One is that I work in real estate, mostly developing communities in the southern part of Israel. And I also am a Magid Shir and a Baal Teshuva Yeshiva in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Oh, very nice. So the Israel Select Charity Fund, this Sadaka, how long have you been involved in it? And walk, with, walk us through, what, what, what did they originally do? After I started Israel Select, it wasn't long after that, that we had COVID-19 and I ended up raising a lot of money to help people. I bought three ambulances. I bought a hundred portable oxygen concentrators. I bought hospital beds for people so they could recover in their house and not in the hospitals. And then after we got over that hurdle, then came the war in Ukraine. And I ended out raising over a million dollars sent to Ukraine mostly to help get Jews out of the Ukraine and get them, ideally many of them, I was able to bring to Israel. And then out of the ones I brought to Israel, 40 of the families, I was able to get them apartments in a community in Tiberia and help them rebuild their lives and get them jobs and become part of, you know, Israeli society. And it sounds like you're an opportunistic charity fund, which is unusual. Sounds like more investments. That's just opportunistic vulture fund, but you're an opportunistic charity fund. You look what the is of the time. So Corona, you were there. Ukraine, you were there. Talk with us post-October 7th. What's your focus been in the past now almost three months? So really, 
once October 7 happened, obviously I jumped in right away to see what I could do. In my city, I live in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and there, there were all right away hundreds of families and people were coming. These were evac evacuees from the south and they needed places to sleep. They needed clothing. They needed food, etc. So I put a lot of effort into that. That was the first week or two after October 7, helping in my city and helping raise money for my connections in America to take care of those people. At the same time, we were sending needs down, whether it was bulletproof vests and helmets, etc., whatever the soldiers needed. It's important for people to understand that the Israeli soldiers, the Israeli government, IDF, could provide most of what the soldiers needed. What happened in this situation is when you have an extra 300,000 people called up as Miluim, reservists, the army wasn't ready for that. Then I spoke to Arabia Mine, and he told me I should really focus on tefillin. And then I kind of segued more into tefillin. Okay, so tefillin, meaning was there demand there? Or you okay, so the, the story with tefillin is as follows. There's a this guy named Mendy, who when he was a bachar around 24 years ago, he would go around putting on tefillin on soldiers, being mechazic soldiers, doing what he could to bring Yiddishkeit to soldiers. So Purim, 24 years ago, he was in the city of Hebron with his brother, delaying the Megillah. And they were ambushed and attacked by Hamas. And Mendy had a bullet go through his shoulder, out his neck. They did not, no one thought he was going to survive. And he didn't think he was going to survive either. And it happens to me, Siat Deshmaya, after he, his costume for Purim was like a high-ranking general, even though he was just a yeshiva bachar. So when the police came and people from the army came and they saw, they're like, the Louvre's been shot, the Louvre's been shot, oh my gosh. So instead of getting the regular protocol, they had a special helicopter come right away, take him to the hospital, and he only, I mean, only survived because Hashem wanted him to survive, but Al-Pidir HaTeva, he survived because the helicopter came and that's what saved his life. As he was in the helicopter and he, Mamish didn't know, am I going to live or die? He made a netter to Hashem. He said, Hashem, if I survive, then I will spend the rest of my life being Mechazic soldiers and bringing Frumkite and Yiddishkeit to our soldiers. That's 24 years ago. One of the projects that he started was to create gemachim of tefillin in army bases across the country. Very often when a soldier is going into what they call a mivza, either into Yericho or into Lebanon or into Hebron or Ramallah, going into a place that's dangerous, very often a soldier will want to put on tefillin and say Shema before he goes in. And most of these soldiers are not religious. They're not Dati Lumi, they're not Haredi, some are Masorati, some of them are Bechlal, not religious at all, but they want to put on, these are not their tefillin, they don't own the tefillin, but they have a gemach. So around 10 years ago, somebody connected me with Mendy and said that Mendy needs help, meaning financial help. Why? Because Mendy has a system set up that when a soldier says, I don't want to only put on tefillin before I go on to a dangerous mission, but I really am a cobble upon myself to wear tefillin every day, then he can have a pair of tefillin. So every once in a while, he would run low on the tefillin and the gemachim, and he would need money to buy more tefillin. So that's how I came into the picture 10 years ago. And every once in a while, he'd say, I need another 20 pairs of tefillin. 20 pairs, $500 each, $10,000. So I would reach out to one or two friends. Okay, I need $10,000. I need $5,000. We need to replenish the gemach and kachaya. That's how it's been for the past 10 years until October 7. Uh, so you were already 
in this a little bit, in a, a little bit amount. Now, now, what happened October 7th? What, why the demands, the huge demand, the significant demand, especially from Chayalim that are not observant? Okay, so really, I don't have a real rash. I'll try, but I don't have a real rational way to explain the demand. It doesn't really even seem to make sense. I mean, I can just tell you there's one story of a of one of the soldiers, totally, totally not religious, and he was in Otef Gaza, on the border of Gaza, October 7th in his hometown. And he woke up to hear, hearing um, the, uh, the Azakot. He heard the sirens going off. And he's like, you know what? Sirens? But look, I live in a town. I border Gaza. It's not strange to hear sirens. But then he started to hear a noise like, whoa, that's machine gun fire. That doesn't sound normal. So he is in the army. He took out his gun. He went outside. And in his words, he said, he, he doesn't know whether it was dozens or hundreds of Hamas Mechabli coming to terrorists coming toward him and they had machine guns and they were on motorcycles and he's like oh my gosh what can i do so he just started shooting and he was such he looked at him like this tough looking guy such a yiddish in when i asked him like he wouldn't tell many how many terrorists he killed he just couldn't you know he's still like rahman they would sell him like him but he killed them he had to he killed many terrorists he didn't think he was going to survive it was one against many and he survived and he says that while he was there shooting he said to Hashem, he said, in to he didn't even know what Shabbos, he didn't talk about Shabbos. He said it was the Sof Shavuah. That's what he referred to what we call Shabbos. He said, I've heard of the word Simchas. I've heard of the word Torah. I never really heard the word Simchas Torah together. Totally removed. He never touched a pair of in his life. And he doesn't know what happened. But as he was fighting the terrorists, he said, a tefillah, he said, Borei Olam. He said, I never even knew. I never thought about it. Is there a Borei Olam? Is there not a Borei Olam? I never thought about it. But I said, Borei Olam, if I get out of here alive, then I'm going to wear tefillin. That's quite a jump. <laughs> That's a jump. And after he said that, he's like, wait, who said that? Like, I, I, what's going on? So when I met him, this was about three weeks after October 7. So I said to him, okay, so like, you've been wearing, he said, yeah, I've been wearing tefillin every day. I said, where do you get them? He said, well, I, I borrow from other Chayalim. So many soldiers have to fill, I borrow them. I said, here's yours. Mm -hmm. And I gave him his own pair of tefillin. His first pair of tefillin in his life, this is yours. He started saying Shema. He broke down crying. This tough guy from an elite unit in the army. So there are many, many stories of soldiers asking for tefillin. They look at it as a shmira, as a protection. And... Someone said to me, and I've seen a lot of people said this idea is that we want to do what we can for the soldiers. One of my donors said to me, if he says he needs a bulletproof vest, I'm going to get it. If the soldier needs Bisley, he needs Bamba, he needs cookies, if that's what's going to help him, I, I'm going to get it for him. He needs special goggles, we're going to get it. If he says he needs to fill in, even if they didn't have a religious significance at all, I'm going to get him to fill in. Putting aside religion, if he says to fill in is going to help him in battle, then I'm going to get him to fill in. A lot of the soldiers, and this is what I've heard from a lot of them, we have this phrase in, in English, you know, there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. A lot of the soldiers have said that what happened on October 7 was not all Pidera Chateva. It just didn't make sense. We're talking about a border between Gaza and Israel. When a mouse crosses the border, sirens go off. When 3,000 terrorists go across the border, no Nothing. one hears anything. So a lot of people in the world, even... Gentiles across the world who've reached out to me have said the same thing. This is obviously from Hashem. Yeah, it makes no sense. Absolutely. So, so soldiers, how do they find you? Technically, how do they find you? Do you have a list of people that are waiting? And where do you give it to them? How, what's the process? Of so the soldiers, first, I have people who are more like shluchim on the army bases across the country, over a hundred people who are involved in trying to bring Frumkite 
to the soldiers. Now, the soldiers, it's really uncanny that they, I mean, there are people on the bases, there are Datilumi people who have their own tefillin, there are people who, there are, are the Gamakim that have built up, so they know about, the, a lot of soldiers know about the concept of tefillin, and somehow they see another soldier wearing tefillin, and they're like, whoa, can I borrow your tefillin? Can, and somehow they see it, they know that it's, they somehow feel in their heart, this is something some protection. I know that this terrible thing happened. Just like after the Six-Day War, a lot of people who were not religious came closer to Hashem. They said, this is a miracle. A lot of people said that after the Six-Day War. So a lot of people were saying a terrible thing happened. We don't call it a miracle, but it's also Yad Hashem. And these sol- soldiers are searching and they're searching. When I go to a base, they look at me as this Haredi Jew. And all of a sudden they're like, well, maybe he has tefillin. Maybe he has tzitzis. The more soldiers that are wearing tefillin is the more other soldiers are seeing them wearing tefillin and the more they want. So it becomes exponential. It's becoming exponential. I started with, a li- shortly after October 7, a list of 2,500 soldiers who were a cobble upon themselves to wear tefillin for the rest of their lives if they get tefillin. I met a general one of my trips and we said to him, and he was interested in tefillin, I said, can you commit to wearing tefillin? You know, except for Shabbos and Yantip, can you wear tefillin every day? Can you commit? He said, I can't commit to putting on tefillin six days a week. I said, could you at least start off committing to three days a week? He said, I'm being on, I can't commit to three days a week. So I said to him, okay, fine. So we have gemachim in all the bases. You're welcome to wear a pair of tefillin. It goes back into gemach. If you're ever interested or something changes, you're really interested in putting on tefillin every day. Here's my number. Here's my contact. You can come back to me. We're not giving out tefillin like it's a, a prize. We're not giving out tefillin to anyone unless they're macabre upon themselves to wear tefillin every day. Mm-hmm. So this list was 2,500. It moved up to 4,000. Now it's over 5,000 soldiers who are requesting tefillin. In other words, there are 5,000 that are waiting for tefillin? I, I have, I've raised $1.4 million, which if you divide that by five $500 each comes out to 2,700 pairs of fun. I've given out. I mean, I didn't personally give out every pair, but I have made sure that 2,700 pairs of tefillin were giving out to soldiers. Meaning right now, we still need to raise the funds for another 2,300 pairs of tefillin. These are soldiers who are waiting for tefillin. People ask me, well, how can you get the tefillin so fast? Isn't there a shortage on tefillin? A lot of people from America are asking that question, and it's a good question. So you have to understand the mitzias. The mitzias is that when someone's looking for a pair of tefillin for their child or their grandchild, great-grandchild, and they're looking for a $2,000 pair of tefillin, $2,500 pair of tefillin, a $3,000 pair of tefillin, yes, there is a shortage of those types of tefillin. The tefillin that I'm getting for the soldiers, which are 100% kosher, totally mahudar, but they're not on the spitz level or really around eight to $900 pairs of tefillin. That's what I'm providing the soldiers. There is no shortage on those types of tefillin. I actually have a meeting later today with some of my over 100 sofrim who are involved in this project. And right now, there are over 2,000 pairs of tefillin ready to go. You just need the funding for it. Just need the funding. Now, like I said, they are, these tefillin are on the market, they're eight to $900. We pay $500 because the sofrim we work with and the sofrim we work with who are all totally checked out and have their ishurim, have all their permits. These are kadasu in. They make a special price for soldiers of $500. Mm, very nice. Because they, they do so much business, it's just like... It's a volume. So here, the sofrim and the sofrim are making their profit on, let's say, 90% of what they sell. And there's a small percent 
where they're doing it cost about at cost, and those are going to the soldiers. Right. So let me delve uh, a, a little deeper. It's a wonderful thing. Every mitzvah that somebody does is terrific. There's a story about the Shabbat eating kosher food, uh, everything that you eat, even the first person's not observant. So here we have people that are putting on tefillin daily, which is an amazing thing. But is there something more? I mean, I can imagine if somebody's donating and they're going to say, okay, I'm giving for, for tefillin. It's a wonderful thing. They're doing the mitzvah. But is there follow-up? Is Are there other opportunities when you have their, the database of all these 2,700 chayalim that you have? Do you follow up with them? Is there more that is done after the giving of the tefillin? When it comes to tefillin, you know, some people have said, wait a second, I don't want to sponsor a pair of tefillin and he wears it one or two times and then it's put on the shelf and that's it. So first of all, as I said before, they've committed to wearing every day. Secondly, every soldier who gets a pair of tefillin has someone, what we call him a madrich or a rav, who's in charge, who looks over him, who says, stays in touch. Are you wearing your tefillin? Do you need help? Are you interested in going to a shir on Torah? Are you interested in a chavrusa? In other words, tefillin has become the gateway mitzvah to get people involved in Yiddishkeit. And somehow this is the mitzvah that these the soldiers are running after right now. There's certain mitzvahs we know that go across all denominations. I'm sure there's a very large percentage of all Jews who light candles on Hanukkah, even if they're not Shomer Tomitzvahs. There's a very large percentage of Jews who eat matzah every Pesach, even though they're not totally Shomer Shabbos. Until now, tefillin has been a mitzvah, really, for the from people. We don't see the Reform and the Reconstructionists and the Conservatives walking out. We don't see them wearing tefillin like we see the from people wearing tefillin. And I know that before October 7, I'm just digressing and I'll come back. Ari will bring me back to exactly what he was asking. But before October 7, we know, unfortunately, there was a lot of schism. There's a lot of fight going on between religious, non-religious here in Eretz Israel, unfortunately. And someone walking around with a kippah to a non-firm person this already makes a barrier there. Oh, he's, he's a religious guy. So if you can imagine someone wearing a yarmulke is considered, oh, he's one of them, all the more so someone who's wearing tefillin. You know, tefillin is for sure for the from people, not for us. We have been fortunate to totally break down that barrier. Tefillin is no longer a mitzvah just for the people who are 100% Shomer Shabbos. It's now a mitzvah for those who are 100% Shomer Shabbos and those that we're davening for who will also one day, Emir Tashem, become 100% Shomer Shabbos. So tefillin has really become the gateway to other mitzvahs. One of my donors, and I told him that this is unprecedented, to have 5,000 soldiers asking for tefillin, it's one thing to have a few hundred soldiers to look after them, have a samadrikam looking after them, but even Art Sevet was not really created to take care of 5,000 soldiers. So we told this donor that we need to hire somebody. We want to have somebody whose full-time job is going to be to look after the religious needs of these 5,000 soldiers. And it's not just 5,000 soldiers. Each one of these soldiers who goes home, if he's married, that means he has a wife and kids who are seeing him wearing tefillin, and seeing that he now might have a chavrusa in learning. If he's single and he goes back to his parents, now they see him wearing. So this is tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. This is having a ripple effect across all of Israel. So Baruch Hashem, which much siyat Dishmaya, somebody, a very, you know, caring person came on board and he said, I will commit to 12 months for a full-time salary for somebody to look after the religious needs of all these soldiers. Mm. I don't want it to be a one-time thing that we help them now and the war is over. This is a certain Pesach that Hashem has given us, and they're open to it now. Yeah, very good. So it's, uh, obviously there are a lot of needs in Kalal Yisrael. Tillin is great. Kiruv is 
great. Uh, using the tefillin as the great way to tefillin it to, to, to Kirovin and or, a relationship with all the chayalim, it's tremendous. But there are a lot of needs in Kali. So why would somebody donating, a lot of people are donating nowadays, why would they donate it to tefillin as opposed to all the other needs that Kali Israel in Israel and the chayalim have? Okay, every, no matter how much money someone has, their tzedakah funds are finite. And there's no one who can do everything. And there's no one who can take care of every single need for the Jewish people. The way I look at it is a lot of points. I'm not which order I'm going to say them in, but what we're talking about, if we're talking about 5,000 soldiers, we're talking about $2.5 million, which is, a, it is a chatikorul but at the same time, it's a very small number compared to the billions of dollars which is being poured, put into the war effort. I feel with my heart, this $2.5 million which could increase because every single day, at least 40, 50 more soldiers want to fill in. I was just in Soroka Hospital two days ago in Beersheba. I had soldiers on my list who had come out, who were in Gaza, who were now injured, they're in the hospital, and they're waiting for their fill in. When I was in the hospital this past Tuesday, another 15 soldiers not on my list who came out of Gaza said, we want to fill in. And the, the, why are they in the hospital? They're injured. These are, and almost everyone is saying, Ani chai I want to fill in. They heard about to fill in. They heard what we're doing. So the numbers are expanding and growing. So I feel that all the needs are extremely important. I can tell you that this is not what's called the most exciting type of need. If When someone has a request for a bulletproof vest, that's much easier to get money for. When someone says there's a family who's lost the child, lost his, lost his father in Gaza, and we want to make make his wish come true, we want to take this child to Disneyland, we want to get him a new motor, motorcycle, whatever the kid wants, then there will be tens of thousands of people who will jump on the bandwagon to support those types of causes. Tefillin is not that type of excitement. What tefillin is, is giving ruchnius to the soldiers. Not only, it's really... As I said before, not just the Ruchnias, but if they want it, we want to give it to them. If it's going to help build their morale, I had numerous, numerous soldiers say to me, say, Rabbi Friedman, I have a bulletproof vest. I have my M16. I have my tank. I'm not going into Gaza without filling. Over and over, I've heard this from the soldiers. So this is also a timely opportunity because, as we say, there's no such thing as an atheist in the foxhole. This is when the soldiers are connecting to Hashem and when they want to fill in. And I'm davening, like everyone else, that this war will end successfully. Successfully, of course. We also know that once the war ends, this window of opportunity to get these soldiers in is not going to be 100% closed, but it will be at least 95% closed. Much more difficult. Much more difficult. We know that if it was the end of Yom Kippur, and you're like, okay, I'm trying, I, some Kavana, little, a lot, oh well, it's Ne'ila now. If I don't stop thinking about the Shtusim and about my business and everything that's going on in my life, I'm going to, Yom Kippur's leaving. I got a half hour left. I got to go, I got to do it now. It's almost over. It's fleeting. So this opportunity for tefillin is fleeting. If someone said to me, I will give you $100,000 next week, or I'll give you $90,000 this week, I would say, what's the Shiloh? I want the 90 now. Not because I'm being irresponsible, because I know if you give me that money today, I will have the tefillin by the soldiers tomorrow. The tefillin are there. I don't keep, one of the things that will select is even though millions and millions of dollars has gone through my fund, I keep a balance pretty close to zero. 
The money comes in, and it goes out. The money goes out. Well, I, I a few weeks ago, someone sent me. It was also just a guy I never met before. He sent me a hundred thousand dollars, not for tefillin, just for needs for cholesterol. It came in. The next day, it was all gone. There's so many needs. There's so many needs, and we're we're not we're not here. We're not trying to save money. We're not trying like it's important to save money. But right now. Hashem has given us an unprecedented opportunity to bring these soldiers closer to Hashem. And as many of you know, that the Kirov movement, which was booming 25, 35 years ago, it's not dead, but it's more like a ghost ace now. The Kirov, it just, it doesn't exist like it did before. A lot of it has to do with modern technology. There's a rough, he was the king of Kirov in Yerushalayim. He told me he used to give a shear. He could have three, 400 people, not from listening to him on every single word. He says, now he goes and he speaks and he has 300 people looking at their phones and he, no one's listening, no one's home. But now we have the opportunity. For this the seems to, this is the opportunity so, right now. Rabbi Friedman for donors, how do they find you? Do you have a website, a so, phone number? Yeah, the easiest would be to go to israelselect.org. Again, it's very simple, israelselect.org. And from there, they can find all the information. There's contact info. I feel very, very strongly that when someone donates money to anything, it's, I mean, Chazal say it's a much bigger mitzvah if you have your heart into it. I want people to donate because they believe in something. So if anyone is interested, and I hope people are, there are people, Baruch Hashem, there have been over 2,600 donors so far, then there's contact information. They can feel free to call to ask, to arrange a meeting, any questions they might have, look at the finances, everything is, as you see in Israel, is shakuf, very transparent. Transparent. Very good, Rabbi Friedman. I want to thank you so much for joining us. You have, have tremendous hatzlach. It seems like you've done a little bit more than half the job, but a little... Another half is to be done here, so uh, you should have tremendous hatzlach. Thank you, Ari. And continue in all your efforts. הותר לפרסום! אתם יודעים מה זה הותר לפרסום? זה אלמנה! זה הורים שכולים! זה ילדים יתומים! תחשבו! הייתי השבוע לנחם אבא כזה! תחשבו, תחשבו מה זה! הותר לפרסום! ועוד הותר לפרסום! ועוד הותר לפרסום! ועוד הותר לפרסום! מה הותר לפרסום הזה? זה אלמנות ויתומים והורים שכולים וילדים ואחים ואחיות ומשפחות ומי שיש לו שתיים שלושה ילדים בצבא הוא מסוגל לישון? הוא ישן עם הטלפון פתוח כל טלפון ומישהו מתקשר אליו בטעות באמצע הלילה הוא מצדק מי יודע מה זה? אתה יושב בשקט? כן, ברוך השם, אביקה בן גברתי, יש לנו חומת ברזל, יש לנו כיפת ברזל, איפה הנסיעה בעול? איפה ההרגשה? אז מה אם אתה גר באזור המרכז? אז מה? איפה הנסיעה שלך בעול עם מישהו אחר? כשאתה רואה אבא שיושב שבעה על ילד, אמא יושבת שבעה על ילד, מה אתה עושה? איך אתה מסוגל לעבור כך לסדר היום? והמערכה מתחממת, זה לא הולך להיגמר פה, בצפון! נדלק. וכשזה יידלק, אוי לא ואוי לנפשוי. מה שעברנו שם זה פינת, זה גרגירים מול מה שיש שם. ואנחנו יושבים שקטים. שקטים. אומרים פרק תהילים, אחרי... מה אתה רוצה? אמרתי עם הממקים קראתי לך השם, סגור. עשיתי וי. 
רבותיי, אנשים גדולים לא ישנים על המיטות שלהם. אם חיילים ישנים על הרצפה ועל הדיונות בחול, אני גם חייב לעשות את זה איתם. כמו שהחופש חיים במלחמה ישן על הרצפה. הרב שיימן ישב על הרצפה. חיילים נלחמים, אני אשן על מיטה? איפה הנשיאה בעול? איפה ההרגשה שאתה נמצא שם? אני לא צריך לא את הראש של סנוואר ולא את הראש של חיזבאללה, לא צריך אותו. אני צריך רק דבר אחד, את מלכנו בראשנו. אני רוצה את מלך המשיח. אני רוצה את בית המקדש, זה אני רוצה. אני לא מחפש חיסולים של סנוואר. הקדוש ברוך הוא בעזרת השם ידאג שהוא יעלה על מטען חבלה, שלושתם ביחד ויעופו. לא צריכים לטפל, הקדוש ברוך הוא יודע לטפל. בקשה אחת יש לי, ריבונו של עולם, שלח לנו את משיח צדקנו. לא נחכה שחד וחלילה תיפתח מערכה בצפון, ואז נצעק למה לא קראנו את השמיים. אם היינו יודעים מה קורה בשנה הזאת, איפה אנחנו נמצאים משמחת תורה. מישהו היום אחד לישועת עם ישראל. כל אחד ואחד יקרא את גזר דין שמיים, ויבטל מעלינו את הגזרה הזאת. והקדוש ברוך הוא יתברך שמו. יביא רפואה שלמה לכל החולים, יחזיר בחזרה את כל השבויים, הקדוש ברוך הוא בעזרת השם יעזור לכל המשפחות שנמצאים בבתי המלון, שלא חס וחלילה יינזקו, יש כאלה שנמצאים בשבי של החמאס, יש כאלה שנמצאים בשבי של היצר הרע באותם מקומות, הקדוש ברוך הוא יעזור, שבעזרת השם יביא לנו את משיח צדקנו במהרה בימינו אמן ואמן.